Hello and welcome to In the Past, Garage Rock Podcast, the show where we talk about a song for way too long. I'm your host, Weldon Gardner Hunter, and with me, as always, is my loyal co-host, Eric Hold the Pose, Comernicky. Weldon, you can try to stop my dancing feet, but I just cannot stand still. <laughs> I noticed that. <laughs> I noticed that. Actually, no, I don't think I've seen you stand up ever once. <laughs> that's uh, that's and a fair you, point. Oh, no, that's not true because we sometimes take breaks and then we get up to get more drinks. And so I see you and you see me get up and we take our headphones off. So, But for the most part, you are sitting down instead of standing still. I mean, you are standing still instead of sitting down. I don't even know what we're talking about anymore. But we're talking this week about the beat. So this week we're going to do a little bit. We we decided to, you know, it's summer. We're going to indulge ourselves. We're just doing a song we like. There's nothing garage about this song at all. So if you're a pure garager through and through, you might save this one for later. Huh? Because that's the song we're talking about. Save it for later by the English beat. Let's just play it. And we're going to start talking about it.
All right. That's The Beat from 1982 with Save It For Later. So before we start talking about the song, and we'll probably talk about why we picked the song this week, uh, later, we're going to talk about that later. We're saving it for later. I'm going to make that joke a lot, I think. it's been, Even before we got on, I made that joke. So it's going to be fast and furious. Um, these guys formed in Birmingham, England in 1978, part of the two-tone movement, which was that uh, musical movement and cultural movement, I guess you could say, in England, where it's a, musically a mix of ska, reggae, punk, and new wave. And the bands were usually comprised of uh, like the, one of the reasons it's called two tone is black and white members. So the checkerboard pattern was kind of a symbol of that. Bands like um, Bad Manners, probably more specifically or more importantly, the Specials and the Selector, the Beat. Uh, even though on this song, there's not necessarily a ska influence, that's their early sound. And this week, and actually over the last two weeks, because we've been taking time off in between, uh, I've been listening to lots of stuff from the beat. I always knew them. I never had an album by them, but I knew some of their songs. But I realized, man, these guys were full of hits. Lots of great songs by the beat. Let's talk about who's in the band then. Dave Wakeling is the guy who's on the lead vocals there. And he's, I think, mainly rhythm guitar. Ranking Roger is the guy who is, he's the toaster. We'll talk a little bit about that. He's not toasting on this song, but he does backup vocals, and he's also the guy playing the tambourine in that song. Andy Cox, I believe, is the lead guitarist. David Steele is the bassist. Everett Morton is the drummer. Dave Blockhead Wright was a new member, uh, and he was he's the guy on the piano, and he also played keyboards. And Saxa is the member of the band who plays the sax, and he's the oldest member of the band. He was about 50 years old when this band was – like, Ranking Roger, I think, was about 16 or 17 when the band started in 78, and Saxa was about 50. So this is a not a, a, just a multiracial band. It's multi-generational as well. Really cool band. This is from their 1982 album, which is their last album before they broke up, and then I think they did reunite with a lot less members of original members. Uh, this is from the album Special Beat Service. And the one last thing I'll say about these guys is – uh, if you grew up in the 80s, you really know that they broke, splintered into two groups. One is General Public, who made one album and had a huge hit with Tenderness, a uh, big part of my youth. And then Fine Young Cannibals, another big part of my youth, who put out a few more albums and had huge hits as well, especially with, uh, what's the biggest hit that they had? She Drives Me Crazy. She Drives Me Crazy. Because <laughs> they had Roland Gift as the lead singer. And he, but good thing, good thing oh. is a big hit, too. Yeah, I used to do good thing uh, at karaoke. Yeah. So, uh, obviously, bands that had a big influence on me. So, now let's start talking about the song. I'm going to throw to Eric now so you can hear someone else talking. Yeah. This uh, this song is just a, a, an incredible arrangement. It's one of these songs where really the song is three chords all the way through and not in various configurations. It's th- three chords presented in the same configuration. Uh, and the chords are D and then A and G. It spends a lot of time on the D. Uh, But we might as well first say, because it's pretty key to the song, uh, that this song... But then you say, well, there's a lot of things that sound interesting about this song. And one of the reasons for that is the guitar is in this unusual tuning. Mm -hmm. So the... um, Dave Dave Wakeling apparently wrote this song when he was a teenager, and I guess he was a fan of John Martin, I believe the name is. Mm Mm-hmm. And I've listened to a bit of John Martin, but John Martin is an acoustic guitar dude and uh, does a lot of stuff in this dad-gad tuning, which is a very common alternate tuning. So guitars, the strings on a guitar are typically tuned E, A, D, G, B, E. I hope I got that right. E, E, A, D, G, B, E. Uh, 
six strings, but a lot of the time you can change the tunings. And the most common one is to drop the E string down to a D string, but there's all sorts of various other tunings. One of the common ones, especially for acoustic guitar, is commonly referred to as dadgad, which is the the tuning of the strings, D-A-D-G-A-D. Now, uh, I guess Dave Wakeling was maybe figuring this out by ear or or remembered it wrong or something and he tuned one second i'll grab a guitar here i've got a guitar in this tuning he tuned hmm. his guitar to to dad add so d a d a a a a d probably sounded like two of the same strings but two strings are tuned exactly the same which you would never normally have on a guitar so sorry i've drifted a tiny bit out too but there's the sound of the guitar and then from there, he can play the riff sounding sort of like this. Right, like two dozen of the dirty lovers. Right, something like that. So mm-hmm. there you hear the sound is you get more of a droney sound. And another thing about Dave Wakeling and playing guitar is supposedly he's left-handed, but just played a right-handed guitar flipped over and didn't reverse the strings. Mm. However, every video I see of Dave Wakeling playing the guitar, it looks like he's just playing a normal guitar where, cause there are so, but it's not like I went really in depth about it. Yeah. I thought I'd noticed too, that he played it left at sometimes, but now I've been watching a lot of videos and also just noticed the way he plays guitar, especially in the early songs of the beat, in the videos anyways. He has a certain kind of shuffle while he – every member yeah. of the beat has a spe- specific kind of way of playing their instruments. And uh, we'll talk more about that. But he has – and he has that famous teardrop guitar that he often yeah. plays, right? Yeah, because apparently is, he idolized Brian Jones. and Oh, okay. Would, I, I guess he would, as a kid uh, – when his mom went out, he said that because he idolized Brian Jones so much, he would take out like a cricket bat and and imagine it was a teardrop shaped guitar. And he had bought a blonde wig from a store and cut it to look like Brian Jones hair. So if his mom went out, he'd put the wig on and (laughs) take out the cricket bat and he would pretend to be Brian Jones. So I guess he was really into Brian Jones. And I think he, that he's has a couple different guitars. He sometimes plays, but that, teardrop shaped vox guitar mm-hmm. maybe it's a vox phantom i don't know why that term is coming to mind though but uh that tear, teardrop shaped vox guitar he played for like 30 years or something and then now it's in the uh rock and roll hall of fame or some museum that would take that kind of thing what a waste i mean maybe he did it for money because uh i assume they give him money to donate it um because otherwise i don't know why he would do it well but- Sometimes you play a guitar like on the road and consistently for like 30 years. It's just not a playable guitar anymore. You're like, oh, I want to play a, a newer guitar. This one is so worn out. And you can mm. like refret guitars and fix them up and stuff. But you do get to a point sometimes with guitars where you're like, I, I, this is just not really a playable instrument. Mm. I can get a more playable instrument. So I think that's the case sometimes when players say, oh, you can take this thing for a museum. Because otherwise you're right. Why wouldn't you just play your guitar? Oh, someone got a message. Uh, I feel like un- he's unsentimental then because I would uh, – did he say – did you say, oh, did his mom buy him the guitar or did I just mishear that? Uh, I didn't read oh. that. I, okay. I, yeah. I think I just misheard the story you told about his mom leaving, but the guitar and the cricket bat, I mixed them up or something. Anyways, um, well, then, okay. Yeah, then later in this song has a line, 
I don't need my mother just hold my hand while I come. So to a decision on it to, to a decision. Yeah. There's the pregnant <laughs> yeah. pause, the appropriate pregnant pause. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. We'll talk about that obviously when we talk about the lyrics, but uh, one of the reasons I picked the song, I actually don't remember. I just started listening to it and I suggested the song to you and you knew it. And one thing is it's one of my favorite songs. I love this song. I don't remember when I first heard it. I'm kind of wondering if I'm pretty sure I've heard it before. I heard the third version that we're going to talk about by Harvey danger. But I think that's that was when I really perked up and knew the song a bit better because I did listen to the beat again. I didn't have an album by them ever, uh, but I heard somehow I just knew their stuff to some extent. So I don't remember. Anyways, it's many people's favorite song. It is one of those songs that if you go in any video that you can find on YouTube or anywhere people write about it, there's a lot of people who say this is their favorite song. This is one of the top songs of the 1980s at the very least. Even if it wasn't a huge hit, it, this was a bigger hit in the US than it was in the UK. They were hit makers in the UK and they never had any real hits in the US except for this song. Although I don't remember how, it didn't go up high in the charts in North America, but it made a bigger impact in North America. So a lot of people that know this song and love it are Americans or North Americans. And I count myself as one of them and I assume you do too. So that's one of the reasons we picked it. But we just want to, sometimes we want to do beautiful songs. It's kind of a thing that's happening to us. We want beauty in our garage. And sometimes you have to go outside the garage. So it is a, I mean, you've pointed out one important thing about the song is that it is a beautiful song and it's a, a fast song. It's a rock song. It, it mm -hmm. clocks in about 128 beats per minute, somewhere around like 128, 130. And that's a pretty fast tempo. And apparently when Dave Wakeling brought this song to the band, they said it was too rock. And you mm -hmm. might hear that and say, what do you mean too rock? But then if you listen to the other parts of the Beats catalog, you'll hear that they really do, they don't do stuff quite so straightforward rock as this. So it is, it is yeah. too rock. And also I think it was the bass player who said it was too rock. And if you hear all the cool stuff he gets to do in the other songs, you can imagine he was like, wait, I just played D, G, and A for the whole song? Yeah, yeah, what about the yeah. other songs? He gets to do all this cool stuff. Yeah, he's uh, uh, that was David Steele, right, is the bass player. He was a young guy in the band too, like Rankin Roger. And apparently he had some pretty strong opinions about what kind of musical directions the band was going. And it sounded like they were kind of a democracy because even though Dave Wakeling wrote this song, it's credited to the whole band. And I think they were one of those bands that – did that. So uh, it sounded like most people in the band didn't really care for this song. If you listen to other songs by the beat, like you mentioned, also by, I should mention, they're also known as the English beat because there was already a new wave band, new wave uh, rock band called the beat that were uh, in the U S. So they had to be the English beat when they were, um, when they were being marketed in North America. But yeah, you hear songs like mirror in the bathroom and the bass lines that David Steele's, playing in those types of songs uh way more sort of caribbean influence uh, lots of uh just you know the the fusion the two-toneness of their music this song now that i think about it you pointed that out is that they the rockism of the song they one of the interviews he says for david Steele, he said it was too old wave dave for him mm. so i think sometimes maybe dave wakeling wanted to do something a little more rock and roll even if it's a pop song like this is just a a rock pop rock song is what this is, but you're right. It doesn't have any of that more signature sound of the beat, but also he did mention that while most of the Dave Wakeling, that is most of the band didn't seem to care for the song. This is the song that made them the most money in their entire career because of that U U S success. 
And it lives on to this day. People, people still love this song. So I think he's still probably getting a trickle of royalties. He talks about it a lot when he gets interviewed. He has to talk about this song specifically, especially to American audiences. So there you go. And when, when people are making music that sounds very new and they're rejecting the old, I think that's great. I'm into that. But one thing about when you're making something that the sound is identifiably new that often tends to be stuff that later sounds dated, ironically. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're doing something that sounds old to you, that's more likely the thing that's not going to sound as dated later on. And that could be part of the thing with why Save It For Later has endured. I, I think you could say that it definitely has endured more than the other songs. Although if you go to Spotify and you bring up the page for the beat – uh, Mirror in the Bathroom is actually the top streamed song, which I was surprised by. Yeah, I think it's because the the British audiences really are more into the the two tone ska reggae element of the band. Because, right. um, like I said, this wasn't a hit, and that makes sense. Then why it's a big hit in the U.S. Because it's more it, it fit in more with the eighty two ness. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's an eighty nineteen eighty two song. It's at the kind of height of new wave when it's actually starting to get actual mainstream attention it's not really a new wave song right like there's nothing in it it doesn't have any um uh, parody element that you could you know like a lot of new wave you can be well this is kind of almost ridiculous sometimes in how innovative the sounds are and you know the singing and styles like that i think that's what makes the song so appealing because when you hear the song you think that this is a, a pop, it's definitely a pop song. It's a pop rock song, but you know that behind the veil or something, there's something, there's other things bubbling under there, simmering under there mm-hmm. that are making the song unique. And I do think it's elements of their, that they're a ska band. It's that they're a new wave band. Uh, and th- th- just the personality of the band that are coming through mm-hmm. in this D A G chord song. Yeah. Yeah, and um, and I think there's something too about uh, all, how, all the years that I've loved this song, I've never paid much attention to the lyrics. I know he's saying things, and I I had an instinct or what's an intuition. I don't know what the word is for. Huh? These lyrics are actually pretty interesting, but eh, I'm not going to worry about them. I'm just going to enjoy the song. It seems to tell a story. It seems to have a message, but there's something also about the beauty of just the song itself, the music and the singing. And so we're obviously going to talk about all those elements and the lyrics. It'll be the first time I've ever considered the lyrics deeply over this last week or so. So I, I think yeah. the reason you don't notice the lyrics quite as much is because the thing that strikes one hearing the song is the song's feel. And it it communicates something through mm-hmm. its feel regardless of the lyrics. And there are some songs that e- even if the lyrics say something totally different, you're always going to sort of get the meaning of it yeah. to you is going to be the feel of it. So something like that song, that bittersweet symphony song that brought a couple of times by the verb, the one that's like, don't say I can change. I can change. Cause I'm here in my mole. And I don't know the lyrics of the song. Yeah, it's yeah. the one where they took the, the string part from the Rolling Stone thing by Andrew Luke Oldham. Anyways, yeah. that song, the video of that song, the famous video where the guy's walking down the street and shoving people out of the way. Mm-hmm. that's the feel of the song. It doesn't matter if he's saying, I'm here in my mo-, and you have no idea what the heck he's saying <laughs> in, in that song, mo- right? Yeah, yeah it's yeah. like, I don't know, he's saying something about he's here, he can change. Yeah. 
But I always thought like, he was saying, I can hear the Ramones or something like that. And I was like, well, well I like the Ramones. Well, so now that's... I like the lyrics. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I don't think he's actually saying that. So, but, but like you were saying, this song, I've never really known what it's about or cared what it was about. There's a couple standout lines that you're always like, oh, yeah, that's this is the song where he says that. Like that one about just hold my hand while I come to a decision. On yeah, it. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and the other thing is the chorus is really beautiful. The chorus is probably what really sends you because it's the arrangement plus then it's got maybe clearer, more uh, direct lyrics possibly. So, but of course, we'll talk about that. I, we haven't actually started talking, but we have started talking about the song. We just haven't talked about the the how it starts and, and all the way through. Yeah, it starts with two bars of just the electric guitar playing the rhythm. Must be Dave Wakeling, I imagine, and when you see them play it live or or – on a show there's a great uh video of them playing it on some show or it must have been around the time it was released and they've actually got string players it's a really good live oh yeah yeah well doesn't it start with one bass note first That's yeah what sorry I th- there's there's what yeah there's a bass note and my uncle theorized that that might have been an accidental bass note that they were just like oh, oh that wow. sounds cool but there you do hear a bass note there at the beginning with the and then the rhythm guitar and that goes for two bars and then he goes Ch-ch. yeah which is a ska thing to do, right? Uh, uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 I, I actually, I actually was going to talk a little bit about ch- ch- talk, talk about. Ch- go ahead. Well, actually, what I want to say first though is about the one bass note. Could yeah. be a concession to David Steele, like he didn't want the song. <laughs> and then, well, okay, we'll open up with a boom. So we should just play the opening bass note. See if you can just play yeah. the bass note. That's going to be hard to do. Is to not. Oh, you want get. me to stop it like after the bass note? Try to try to. I, yeah, I didn't okay. quite get it. Let's do it one uh, more that's time. One more time. Okay, that was pretty, pretty close. Good. Yeah. Yeah. I like that just that boom. And then yeah. ding ding ding. And then you've got, of course, that rhythm guitar sound, which we should talk a little bit about because it's a great sound. It's this ringing rhythm jangly, guitar. Yeah. Very jangly, very prominent. And it goes entirely throughout the song. He just keeps jing, 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 jing. And um, I, I like it. I just like this ringing guitar sound that you have. So I'll talk about the chicka chicka thing then is that it's part of. Uh, ska and i think it was uh created um it's part of what you expect from ska music is a lot of times they do this sometimes people have theorized it's them kind of imitating a guitar chicka, 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 kind of thing a lot of ska music has a guy going doing that sound uh because ska music has this kind of very sp- particular beat right it's on the off beat chink 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 right and so that the chick chick sound that the guys will do this is actually dave wakeling do it but it's the kind of thing that you generally have the toaster Rankin Roger right. doing, but some, uh, what I was reading about the history of, uh, of toasting itself is that uh, it was Jamaican guys in the sixties. And one particular guy whose name I cannot remember. I didn't write it down. was a DJ and he was just kind of copying American DJs and that, so what toasters do, you're not going to hear it in this song, but other English beat songs is when, um, when you've got Rankin Roger and he, often all he does is look dapper and do these kind of cute dances on stage, the sort of skanking dance that they did in ska music. Um, he's often just making these, the, there's a part where he does what you ended up hearing a lot in the nineties is like a rap feature, a guy saying, you know, remember the song faded by soul decision. And then they had that one version yeah. where what's the name of the rapper. I can't remember. Oh, I don't he come, remember. Yeah. He comes in and just does a few bars. Right. So then you'll have a few bars it, earlier than the rap feature. You had toasters in England, especially guys who would come in and say it's in tears of a clown at the end of tears of a clown by English beat. They do it. That was their first single. You've got at the end ranking Roger go tears of a clown. And he's doing it in. A, oh yeah. I remember that part. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then there's parts in other songs where he's, 
he's get, giving it kind of a reggae feel by kind of speak singing. Again, this is the year of Sprechgesang. Yeah, even the, the verses of this <laughs> song to me are kind of Sprechgesang. Yeah, that's a good point. So uh, Sprechgesang means speak singing and the kind of thing that Lou Reed does. But I do really think that that, that sound is the one ska element of the song. Ah, it's just yeah, yeah. going So they're just going, hey, it's still a ska song. We've done one ska thing in this song. Um, so I like that element. And, and of course, it's got an as you pointed out, an arrangement that really makes this song special because you've got the band playing, you've got this extra guy that wasn't in the band before, the pianist, Dave Blockhead, right? And then you've got those strings that really let the song soar. Mm-hmm. It's just a perfect coming together of what's great about the beat and how really they're a great band and how they have each member of the band doing something really unique. And when you see their videos too, you can see how much they stand out as personalities. So uh, we'll talk more about them in that way too. But uh, so we've kind of talked about the first early part of the song with the mm-hmm. bass note, the ringing rhythm guitar, and the stuff. I also think it's cool that um, Dave Wakeling and Ranking Roger like stayed to they stuck together. And after the beat broke up, D- Dave uh, Dave Wakeling and Ranking Roger went on to be in like not just uh, general public together, but an, I think another band as well. Oh, okay. Together. So they they really uh, stuck together those two. Yeah, yeah. I think part of that was reading about them is uh, Dave Wakeling kind of felt like the band had reached its end. Everyone else wanted to take a break, and he was trying to actually get um, what's the song "Tenderness" that they did was really big when it was general public. He was trying to get them to do that as a beat song, uh, but they wanted some time off. And then, of course, another thing that David Steele wanted to do is "Suspicious Minds," which he ended up doing later with. Fine Young Cannibals. And by the way, Roland Gift of Fine Young Cannibals, I didn't know this before. They knew him because he was in a ska band. He wasn't actually the singer. It was a band called Acrylics. Yeah. He was just a guy in the band, I guess. So, right. And then they found out that he had this really distinctive voice. And of course, they had a huge hit in the US with Suspicious Minds. So the fourth beat album could have had um, Tenderness, which that was an iconic video in the 80s because we always talked about how Rankin Roger had that tiger stripe hair style. It's sort of multi. It's two tone itself. It's kind of yeah. uh, kind of red and uh, and yellow. And we were like, man, we would always talk about if we could get our hair like that, but you can't. Especially if you're a white kid, you can't do that. It's it's, it's not going to happen. Here's another interesting thing about the tenderness video. I saw Dave Wakeling on some TV show. I think they were doing an '80s weeks. And is it about he, his eyes? Yeah, yeah. That he said, <laughs> yeah, yeah. they did the they did the music video, and he said. Back then when you were doing a video, they would put these drops in your eyes to make them really, really blue. So mm-hmm. anyone out there, if you're watching an 80s music video and, and you see people that have these insanely blue eyes, it's that yeah. they would put some drops in your eyes and make them insanely blue. Well, we used to talk about it when we'd watch that video. And then there's a moment in the video. I know we're talking about tenderness now and not save it for later. We'll get right back to it. But uh, tenderness has this moment you can freeze frame on where – Dave Wakeling makes this funny face. And for years, I had it as my screensaver. It's this picture of bl- extremely blue-eyed Dave Wakeling, and he's making this kind of almost scary face. And it terrifies people. So we, I would always just stop it on that and make people look at it. But yeah, he had very blue, very, very blue eyes. And it turns out years later, I found out just this week that, oh, it's because there was some sort of uh, eye drop that made it more blue. But he says it's his mom's favorite video because they both looked nice. Ranking Roger and... <laughs> Dave Wakeling. So it's a beautiful partnership. Ranking Roger is sadly no longer with us. Neither is Everett Morton, the ba- or the drummer, and neither is Saxa. So there's three members of the beat who are gone from the world now, which is kind of sad. 
Um, they just seem like great guys, especially because I've just over the last two weeks, like you have probably listened to lots of beat songs. I've really become a fan in a big way now. Saxa died of old age in like 1994. Yeah, you're right. He was actually like in his 80s, I think, by then. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of a rude joke. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. The, the well, and then you mentioned that the band they they sort of were having some creative um, disagreements or with the direction of the band that led them to break up. And then Dave Wakeling and Ranky Roger did, did general um, general public. But I swear this is going to make someone mad who's a ska fan out there. And I I love uh, uh, there is ska music I love and I love uh, I love the beat, but. You show me a ska band that sticks together for 40 years, playing ska music for 40 years. I don't think it can be done. I think if you're in a ska band, it's like people get really excited about it, and you get on stage, people go, wow, there's horns and stuff. This is so good. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then like three years passes, and you're like, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> well, there is one band. It's Bad Manners. They were the one with the really fat Buster Blood Vessel as their lead singer. Oh, I was going to mention Madness, of course, as a huge, right. probably the one with the most commercial success. But of course, they didn't, they went on to uh, really make their sound. Like by the time they had a huge hit in the US with Our House, that's not a ska song. So a lot of bands realized ska is maybe how they started off, but they went on. But bands that just play pure ska, you're right. That's, uh, that's hard to. Uh, I don't know. There was a recent Simpsons. I actually watched them while I was on vacation in a foreign destination, which will not be named because it's a country that no one actually knows about except for people like myself, really rich and important. And uh, there's a Simpsons where, um, oh, crap, now I can't remember what my <laughs> – I, I, I went off the, the Simpsons shtick. where there was something else, Ska? Uh, no, what it is is that uh, – is, is that, uh, Kirk Van Houten is really into this, uh, that one song by the Cherry Poppin' Daddies. Oh, and I can't even remember what the name of that song was right. anymore. But anyways, he just it, – it, oh, it's something about closing time, but it's not the one from Semisonic or whatever yeah. did it. Anyways, it's just that he has a mixtape that's just that song over and over again. So there are some people out there possibly only in the world of fiction who want to hear – and then I know they're not a ska band, but that kind of sound – that just somehow kind of dies out, right? Even in Jamaica, ska kind of then moved into reggae, which has more staying power than ska. I don't think too many ska bands want to stay a ska band. And so you see that with the beat. Right? Yeah, and the final so. I, I agree with that. Yeah. So let's keep talking about the song. We've gotten to the chick, chick, chick part. And then there's a, and then the acoustic rhythm guitar comes in mm. and there's, and then I think, and so this goes for two bars and then there's a snare roll and then the bass comes in and also the strings and then another electric guitar, which kind of plays arpeggios, but those, so the bass is obviously important, but those strings are a huge part of the song that I bet some people don't even really notice when mm-hmm. they're listening to the song. Cause they're so sort of beautifully integrated into the feel of the song. Yeah, and they're playing kind of uh, like a pizzicato thing. Dun, 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 it's dun, not pizzicato because pizzicato is oh. when you when you pluck the strings, but okay. they're, they're it, so they're bowing them. But boom. yeah, they're going like boom, 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 and then they're going boom, 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 boom. Uh, I'm gonna still every time I air string to this song, I'm gonna play pizzicato. I'm just gonna keep doing it. But I think there is some pizzicato later. But I and I know you'll see that even if you were like unsure about it if you watch that live video and you watch what the string players are doing they're definitely bowing those notes yeah and they're playing they're playing the song live there too it's a show called over the top that was only around for a few months in 1982 there's this really un 
impressed audience who are watching them play this song, but they're playing it live and the string guys are and there. it sounds amazing. Yeah, it's yeah it sounds really good. I didn't even notice the first time I listened to it that it wasn't them uh, mimicking the song, you know, just uh, lip syncing that they're, they're right. actually playing it because it sounds so good. But um, yeah, so uh, yeah, again, this song didn't really seem to hit the, the, the UK audience the way it came over here, but um, yeah, it's a beautiful song. And those strings, again, we've talked about it. But I also want to say that Rankin Roger doing the tambo is really great. And great. Did you the watch... tambourine's huge in this song. It's huge, huge in it. And have you watched the actual video, the one they did to you know for the song? It's them set almost in a beatnik nightclub. So. Yeah, oh, you got to watch it. We'll have to watch it later because you're going to love it. Um, the... It's a great video. Another thing I noticed about that live video where they have the string players is everyone else is wearing their, their cool band clothes. But the mm-hmm. string players are wearing tuxedos. I wonder if the string players showed up in just their regular clothes and they were like, well, aren't you guys going to wear like tuxedos? And they were like, <laughs> well, no one else is dressed up. You think that that's how we dress all the time because we play cellos and violins? Like, oh, oh and yeah. And the tuxedo. sax of the, the sax player is always wearing like kind of like a bucket hat and a raincoat. He looks like kind of like a black Paddington bear or something. There's just something really great about his look. And he, you know, the, the, every member of the band, again, if you see them, you go, every single one of them looks very like a di- really distinct character in the band. Mm-hmm. And then you got the drummer Everett Morton, who kind of just looks like the one guy who's just, look, I'm just here to play drums and, you know, I'm wearing a t-shirt and jeans he's never really dressed up funny but the a lot of the times there in the later period dave wakeling is wearing eyeliner and stuff like that getting a little maybe that was just in one video and they're making fun of the new romantics maybe i'm just thinking he did that more often than he did but um and, and they're you know handsome dudes too so a lot of people i noticed by looking at the comments people are talking about dave wakeling's sexy voice and eyes so he clearly made a big impression on people who were watching these videos but yeah um, and the piano is very audible during the chorus too. And that's going to come yeah. in really big in the second version that we do. So everyone's got a part to play in the song, maybe except for the bass player, David Steele. As yeah. You pointed out. I think he does some subtle stuff that's cool where he seems to do some lines on the bass that sort of uh, duplicate a bit of what the strings are doing, but it's a little bit hard to pick it exactly out from the recording. Mm-hmm. So then there's another snare roll to get into verse number one. And then, uh, Dave Wakeling comes in with the vocals and I, I just want to spend a moment talking about Dave Wakeling's voice. I mean, specifically yeah, in this song, but I really think his voice needs to be talked about because it's this, it's throaty mm-hmm. resonant voice. It's lower than, than a lot of singers singing voices. Um, I could see why someone would say he had a sexy voice. Cause it's like a, a, a this throaty deep, deeper kind of voice. He's a good singer. But then when you watch him, if you watch him in more modern videos where there's a lot of videos on YouTube mm-hmm. where it's Dave Wakeling in some studio playing a, an acoustic version of Save It For Later. And he's struggling and, a bit. Yeah, he struggles. And, you know, he would have been coming in cold. It's not like it's like the yeah. end of a, of a long night of singing and his voice is warmed up and stuff. But his his, his voice isn't sounding great all the time, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and you're sort of like, is this guy so... I guess it's, but then you hear songs like tenderness and stuff and you're like, this guy has one of the really excellent eighties voices and this works really well for those eighties type songs. So Mm -hmm. I don't know. Weldon, what else do you have to say about Dave Wiggling's voice? Dave Wiggling's voice. Interesting because maybe when we start talking about how he's saying things in the song, that's always something we talk about here. His phrasing is a big part of this song too. Cause he's interesting phrasing. 
Yeah, the phrasing for sure is big. And I noticed that with a lot of his songs, he's, he's, he's got, he is a great singer and he's a great songwriter. Like yeah. even songs like Hands Off, She's Mine. Uh, he just, he's, he's a good song. Uh, he writes great love songs and they, they, and they're also really catchy. Mm-hmm. And I go, man, this guy's actually kind of underrated because we don't talk about him that much, but he was writing hits in the eighties. He had a big run there for about five years, right? Most of it in the UK, but you're right. There's something maybe when we go back and listen to certain parts where we can talk about what he sounds like, but maybe we should start talking about the first verse and the lyrics. Yeah. Yeah. So do you want to recite them or should you, I? You go ahead. Okay. And if you want to correct me, because I'm, I'm going off of lyric websites, although I still change things. And they said, two dozen other dirty lovers. So it starts off with this number, two dozen other dirty lovers. A great first line of a song because it's very evocative and it doesn't make immediate sense. Must, so two dozen other er, dirty lovers must, must be a sucker for it. Cry, cry, but I don't well, need well, my Well, can we talk about those first two lines? Yeah, okay, sure. Because here, I think there's already an ambiguity because he says, Two dozen other dirty lovers must be a sucker for it. And you don't know here if what he would be – well, it could be something else too. But if what he would be referring to is that the the dirty lovers are a sucker for it or he's thinking about lovers he's had and saying, mm. I must be a sucker for it to keep acquiring these the, these dirty lovers. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? I guess so. I, I just – if I feel like the weird thing about the song is it comes in without references. Two dozen other – so when you're making references to others, you seem to have, you need to have context. So normally it wouldn't come in as the first line of the song. So it has mm. almost a media res kind of opening. And then it, of course, is what's the, what's it referring to here? So it's very abstract at yeah, beginning with those first two lines. Two dozen other dirty lovers. What's it? So but and then that of course. It would be the dirty lovers if, if it's you saying I must be a sucker for it. Because then the next lines are in the first person, so hmm. why could okay. this be a first person reflection? I guess I'm a little lost in there. I just I just I think of the yeah the two the two opening lines as kind of well in a sense I I take the song as reading like a John Ashbery poem. I'm like I don't know what it means, but it sounds good, and I know right. it means something. That's the way I look at it. And then it, you're right; the next two lines become way with the first person reference. Then they fall into place a little bit. But I'm sure you read the same thing that I did, which is he says that the song is about, because he wrote the song as a teenager and the song was sort of about becoming an adult. And then yeah. the the fear you would feel that you, you didn't really know your, your place in the world. Mm-hmm. And right. So then we can talk about that more as we get through more of the lyrics. Yeah. And then of course the cry, cry, but I don't need my mother is very much referring to that, you know, passing from, being a teenager into early adulthood, not being a young adult anymore, being a full-fledged adult without your mother, without your father. He doesn't reference his father. And then, of course, we've got the famous line, just hold my hand while I come, and then the pregnant pause. And then, of course, pregnant pause is great in that context, right, to a decision on it. So we should mention that the title then uh, is also part of the song's lore, is that Dave Wakeling mentions that it's just a dirty joke, Save it for later. For later is supposed to be the way you sing it. Save it for later. They don't say the R. Yeah. And that it's supposed to be a way of saying save it, comma, for later of someone who performs oral sex. Right. So so it's supposed to be a joke, which is funny for a song that has such a 
uh, it strikes such a chord with people and has such deep meaning for people, even though people don't often know what it is they're responding to in the song, as you said, the feel, but it's got already in the title and in the first verse, uh, especially then with dirty lovers that could add to it, this feeling of it, it negates the sense that it's about becoming an adult This holding on to this childishness of making these kind of jokes. Although 20 year olds do it too. Can I also point out that the second line of the song is must be a sucker for it? Oh yeah. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. 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 I read an interview with him where he says it would be like in the U S saying, leave it, leave it alone cocksucker. And he said, but we didn't have that term cocksucker in Britain. They would, I guess not. They just didn't call anyone something like that. It was yeah. then a word that he could use later, but it's this way of fillator is supposed to be the joke. I don't think right. it has any actual meaning, except that I think it does resonate in this first verse for sure. Right. But there's something in this song about dirtiness now. Now, since we're talking about when we, when we eventually get to the second verse that's going to come back there's something about pollution in a way dirty lovers and then later on so uh, uh, this in this line at the end of the verse just hold my hand while i come pregnant pause to a decision on it it reminds me of the if it was the first or second teenage mutant ninja turtles movie i remember when (laughs) i when i was young i went and saw that in the movie theater i probably would have been a teenager or something at that time i think um like a young teenager and there was one scene where – but I was old enough to understand something like this. And there was one scene where uh, the rat that is their like teacher, the Ninja mm-hmm. Turtles sort of teacher and a mentor, I think, mm-hmm. his name is Shredder. And he's up on the roof of a building. And then the Ninja Turtles, they go up onto the roof. And Shredder has been up there by himself for a long time. And they go up and they say, Master Shredder. That's what they call them. Mm-hmm. They go, Master Shredder, what have you been doing? And he goes, and he turns around, and there's a pause, and he says, coming. And then there's a long pause, and then he goes, <laughs> to a decision. And so any like oh. teenager watching it is like, well, that was funny, because it seemed like he had been wanking up uh-huh. on the roof. And, and then the ninja trolls came, and he was like, sorry, guys, I've been up here just wanking hey, for several hours. So- so could this song be about uh, delaying, you know, the idea of uh, sex and trying to prolong the experience if you're a man by remembering things like, instead of thinking about the actual moment that you're in making love to someone, but you actually start thinking of baseball scores or something to actually prevent you from ejaculating early. Maybe this first verse is about the idea of trying to have a, it's, it's trying to have more stamina, more endurance. Well, it it makes sense with the... Uh chorus too because when you're i I mean i'm sure that he means it this way but to say like your legs give way you hit the ground is like you would would be the person receiving the fellating i assume there and then you're Mm -hmm. like one in the moment of getting quite graphic (laughs) well your your legs would give way with the the orgasmic moment if it's that good yeah you hit the ground um what was i going to say it makes me think of how sting was into what is it called tantric yoga yeah yeah (laughs) maybe this is some sort of statement Sting. Sting. I I don't know if we've ever brought him up on the show before. He's about the least in the past guy that you could have, I think. Well, not the least. There's probably some others that we've talked about, like Rob Thomas. But Sting's up there. Anyways. I'll uh, tell you what song I don't like is Fields of Gold. Get that shit out of here. Yeah. 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 He's written some good songs, obviously. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. For sure. Sorry. Yeah. But but also Englishman in New York is a little too adult contemporary for Mm. me. But anyways, um, 
so okay there's an emerging i mean obviously these uh kind of juvenile sexual references are there's an emerging uh reading of the song as being about sex then sooner or later your legs give way you hit the ground save it for later could be what we're thinking about is the idea of trying to uh prolong the experience but it's also then you know meaning other things too because he was talking about that meaning of the song being about coming into young adulthood or whatever we call it being a man now is save your advice everyone's telling me how to live my life you should save it Mm. save it for later when i'm older but save it for later i'm calling you an insult name too Mm -hmm. so but then it also then then when he says don't run away or let me down uh, don't run away and let me down is then almost like an address to a lover then or someone he's talking directly to someone at that point. Yeah. And I want to, and musically what has happened just before this chorus part is that tambourine has come in at a very key moment where it's very notable, where it comes in right on the end of the last line where he says, just hold my hand while I come to uh, the comes yeah. in before he finishes that line. And okay. it's really neat that those lines in the first verse and then later on too, one thing Dave Wakeling does here that really works is the lines aren't all the same length because mm-hmm. the first line, two dozen, two dozen other dirty lovers um, must be a sucker for it. And then you sort of expect the next couple lines to just sound the same pattern, right? But mm-hmm. then cry, cry, but I don't need my mother, which is already a little bit different from the first line. But then he extends the the fourth line with the Tua decision on it, right? Which is neat. And then mm-hmm. he also extends the last line of the choruses always when he does the, like, um, don't run away and let me down. Don't run away and run away. And extends that last line of the chorus too. So um, he by not making all the lines symmetrical, mm-hmm. he makes them more surprising and more interesting. And I think it's part of what makes the song cool. Yeah, for sure. And that chorus is really great. Sooner or later. It's just, it's the way it scans. You legs give way, you hit the ground. Yeah. Save it for later, don't run away. And you notice that every version of the song, someone does something with it their own way. Yeah. Because he's not doing it the way I'm doing it. Sooner or later, you'll hit the deck, you'll get found out. There's something really great about that sound. Da, 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 da. I, something really special about the chorus melody, and it's hard to put yeah. your finger on. Yeah. The, uh, uh, and then... Um, another thing that makes the chorus sound great is a piano comes in here under the chorus mm-hmm. and that's, what's the name of the piano player again? You Dave guys? Blockhead Wright. Yeah. He used to be their lighting guy and then they, uh, apparently Saxa was feeling unwell, which was their euphemism for being hung over. Yeah. And since he was an older guy, I guess. And then they would have him come in to replace him just to play piano and then eventually by the third album he became a uh, mem- full-fledged member of the band and he's in the songs now, so... Uh, that's also what adds to this song is I don't know if there are too many other songs before by the beat where they might be using keyboards, but they don't have a piano. So it's clanging away or playing those yeah. piano oh, it's chords. Yeah, really nice little sustain chords. Like, dun, 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 dun. A slightly different uh, pattern of the chord changes than is done with the guitar and the bass. Mm-hmm. So so that that's really nice too. Uh, and then background vocals become prominent here in the uh, in the chorus. And then... Yeah, that's good, I think. And yeah, I'm yeah, right to go to the, yeah. yeah, you got Rankin Roger helping him out here because when yeah. Rankin Roger doesn't do the toasting, he's basically just doing backing vocals and he's playing the tambourine. tambourine so yeah. He does a lot of work in the band. So yeah, should we get to the second verse then? Yeah, so in between this verse and the, or sorry, in between that chorus and the second there's verse, a sax. there's a, a two bar rest and then two bars of the a sax fill, which is like, uh, 
I, I can't remember what it does, but this sax. Dun, 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 yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. That's dun. a good feel. Yeah. Yeah, it's nice. I, I like that a guy like Saxa, although, by the way, in the video, they have a different guy playing the sax. And he also shows up in that video that you were talking about, the live one. Saxa doesn't seem to be there. There's another guy. He's a younger guy that's playing. I think he might be... Um, Ah, oh, I can't remember his name. Graham Hamilton, who ends up in Fine Young Cannibals. But maybe but they didn't tr- want an older guy on stage on TV. They were like, get out of here, Saxa. Yeah, well, they had Saxa on uh, their Top of the Pops. Uh, right. Yeah. And he's just a, he's kind of an important visual component. But I like how they always give the sax player more than just a random sort of like he adds to the song. There's something that really adds to the song by having. Again, all members of the band, but especially like in this case, the saxophone players adding a nice line there. So um, you're right. There's that. And then the really interesting lyrics here and also a possible slight uh, debate about what's being said. I think he's saying black air and seven seas all rotten through, but some people just say are rotten through. Oh, I yeah, I, I was thinking all rotten through, but that's also was in the lyrics I printed up. So it's hard to know. Yeah, I saw it changed, but I've listened to him do that. Uh, in an American radio show uh, where they're into, or it's a TV show. I think you've saw it too, where he's talking and he's answering questions. He's always a bit self-deprecating Dave Waite. He's a great storyteller too, which shows you why he can be a good songwriter. He tells really good stories about the band in the days of, you know, when they were at their, their peak. And he seems to sing black air and seven seas all rotten through, but that's a very poetic line. It's very mm-hmm. symbolist, almost black. Air. And it, I don't know what it means, except that it's a contrast, black air and seven seas, but they're all rotten through a beautiful thing. And a, you know, the idea of black air could be Birmingham because it's an industrial city. So black air and seven seas, the idea of going further out afield into the world. And when he sings the song live, when he, after he says, but what can you do? He's, he, I've seen him on a couple of different occasions say, join Greenpeace. Yeah, so yeah. It to be some kind of environmental message, at least later on for him, if not. Yeah, okay, yeah. Black air and seven seas. All, oh, okay. So then it's an environmental statement. It could be as well. But I do like that it could mean that. And it could also be something about the idea of your hometown and the world outside. Birmingham, black air. The rest of the world, seven seas. But you know what you're going to find out when you get older? That they're all rotten through right. the seas and the air. So in that way, that's the symbolist reading of it. The more direct environmental or the direct kind of not symbolist reading is also that he, because he's the songwriter, he can make it mean both that what can you do, join Greenpeace. Which I, I like that he throws that in, but I wouldn't want it on my uh, single or my album version because i'd be like oh okay but i like that you know he's he's got a bit of that folky quality where he can play with his own songs yeah so but what can you do then isn't just a rhetorical question because it does seem like it's a rhetorical question otherwise but what can you do and i like how uh, when we get to the third version the way he says it the way the singer says it and performs it in the video. I think the videos are also important for these songs. And then I love this line, and I'm sure you do too, because it's so British. Mm-hmm. I don't know how I'm meant to act with all of you lot. We don't say that in North America. You would say you guys, but I love that the Brits can say lot, you lot. If I was to say that, it would sound like the way people are saying gobsmacked all the time now. I'm like, stop saying gobsmacked. That's a British phrase, and we right. don't use it. It's too. It's like saying flat. When you come back or lift, it's like, well, we have words for that here in North America. So don't use flat to talk about your apartment here. And so if I was to say, I don't know how to act with all of you lot, you'd look at me like, "Uh, why are you saying it that way? But Dave Wakeling says it. It's like, so cool. It's called people lot. 
and he's crammed a whole bunch of words in here, right? Uh, and yeah, like compared to the this equivalent line from the first verse when he said, "Cry, cry, but I don't need my mother." That's the line we're here. He's saying, "I don't know how I meant to act with all of you lot." That's a lot of words to fit into, yeah, that, that line space. And then almost every line in this verse has background vocals under it too, except for the first "Black Air and Seven Seas" all rotten through. The other ones all have background vocals under them. And there's nice harmonies in this song too. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, there are. Um, yeah, because then, then the rhyming stops too. I don't know how I'm meant to act with all of you lot. Sometimes I don't try. I just na 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 na. And then it, the na na's turn into nows, and you've got that now, 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 now part. Yeah, yeah. And so, and so the na na na's because there's so many of them. He says, "I just na 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 na." So that ends up making the second verse eleven bars, whereas the first, I think it's eleven bars. But there's an, and then there's an extra bar with the now, 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 now to make it a twelve bar verse. Whereas the first verse was eight bars. So sounds like the same thing as the first verse, but it's actually quite a bit longer, right? Yeah. So the structure of the the verses then, and just the words within them, as as you are pointing out are very expandable. Uh, yeah. They're not following a, a metrical pattern. That's really interesting. So I think that's what's making this a uh, part of all the things we're talking about are making this song really special. Mm-hmm. It's just got so many different kind of things in it for a pop song. But there's also something really classic about just, just ending and in, instead of worrying about meaning anymore, just, I just, na 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 because that's a pop song right i just na 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 doesn't yeah. matter it just sounds like na na na's it's it works well in a pop song but it it doesn't mean anything but he turns na na kind of into now which seems to be interesting i think again i'm only just coming up with this stuff now as i'm talking about the song i made a decision to not really look deeply into the lyrics because i just kind of i'm on vacation and i'm not teaching literature right now so I just want to do it on the spot. I want to do it na 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 now. Which I yeah, just and and you can't do the same thing by saying now for everyone. Like you can't go I just now 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 now. Like yeah, singing yeah. wise, that doesn't sound good, right? Vowels sound good, so that's why singers say things like na 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 and da 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 and do 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 because vowels sound good. Whereas now, now, now doesn't sound good if, to sing. If he did this though at a convention of uh, cat video creators he could go i just meow 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 that does sound pretty good actually and actually that could be a good uh because i don't think dave wakeling is above selling his song uh to a cat food manufacturer to make some money you know for a commercial i just meow 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 i don't even think it would ruin the song i think it's a rare song where putting it in that kind of context yeah it's still a great song it doesn't matter if there's a version of it which with has a cat going meow 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 in it because yeah because then they could still before the next chorus do a meow 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 meow. that now 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 sounds cool too because they put like a phaser or a flanger on it so it's got a bit of like phasing that that uh that is good a little modulation and it seems it's not a modulation but that's also called modulation Okay, and it, it seems to speak a little bit to the song having something to do with going out into the world, becoming a man, and not and feeling very ambivalent about it. Feeling like I don't know, maybe I want to just be back in the you know my mother's apron kind of thing or something like that. So because he's mm-hmm. indecisive, right? Just hold my hand while I come. Clearly, the implication there is that this is someone who's who's sexually active. This is a, a young adult. This is someone who's out in the world in that way, worldly. But isn't really sure of what to do, what the next step is going to be. So it's mixing up sex 
uh, with this idea of going out into the world, which is what I think people are kind of responding to. That's part of it, right. the feel of the song and the fact that they can kind of latch on to the fact that the song does sort of give you that feeling. Like excitement and fear. Yeah. Uh, co- coagulating. Yeah. I just, that's the second time this uh, in two days where I've seen that word or <laughs> heard that word in, in a, in an unusual way. So congratulations. Yeah. Good. Uh, congratulations. All sorts of v- meniscus being spilled in this song. Ooh. Uh, so, so something else that occurs here that com- that enters into the world is the, the violin, the strings now play for the mm-hmm. first time, uh, like sustained bowed notes in the chorus, and that gives it an extra lift. So there's yeah. there's a couple of really great li- liftoffs in this song, and, and one of them I would say is here where the violin, where it might just be, vi- it's probably a violin and a cello, I think, um, here that's going, and the piano is still here doing the chords, and we have a chorus that is quite a bit like chorus number one, except they extend the last line more. So the last line of this uh, chorus, which is a 12 bar chorus, whereas the first chorus was an eight bar chorus. Uh, this is 12 bars because they do save it for later. Don't run away and run away and let me down. You run away and run away and let me down. Yeah. And that too. And when he starts saying in the second chorus, where he's doing the let me down, he starts to sing it differently. And it's almost kind of, uh, a song that has sincerity, but it also has because of the lyrical, you know, the the double entendres. By the way, that's the uh, uh, the name of our intern this week is Entendre, who I haven't mm. seen in a while. But uh, there's there's not there's just one of them. So well, I, I, yeah, let me down could also be from a penis from being erect to being okay. But I like the way he sings. He goes let me down, and he's kind of almost he's almost doing a punk thing there. I the way I hear it is that he's He's exaggerating the song, kind of rolling his eyes at it. I'm not saying that that is actually what he's doing. I just kind of hear it that way. It's because he's, you run away and let me down. Yeah. And he does like to croon because they do a, a song called Just Can't Get to Lose, it Can't Get Used to Losing You, which is apparently an Andy Williams song. And they do kind of a cute version of it. I think it was their last hit. Yeah. And, uh, and he sings that in kind of the same way. It's a little bit of a, uh, ironic crooner voice. So the way he goes, let me down. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I didn't think of that as also being a sexual innuendo because uh, I, did you see that there's a video out there? Someone does a 23 minute video essay of just this song. No, they do it for the third version. They do it for the uh, third. That, I didn't see that. No, it's really, see, it makes me go in my mind. I'm like a 23 minute video essay on Harvey Danger's version of Save It For Later. And then I remembered something. I do a podcast on music <laughs> and we talk for two and a half hours. We're going to talk about We've Harvey We've been talking Danger about that. We're not halfway through this song. We've been talking for an hour already. <laughs> but it's funny that I responded with almost a, what? how can you talk about the song for 23 minutes? Oh, isn't that what I do, but <laughs> longer? I'm like, wow. Sometimes self-reflection is hard in this world. Luckily, I, it came to me eventually. It came to me later uh, didn't work as <laughs> didn't work as well but you know i'm trying my best here so okay uh, so but by the way in that one the boyfriend of the woman who does the video essay says this song is loaded with sexual innuendo and i was like well what are are the other innuendos besides the title and the the you know the pregnant pause and then you've pointed out the other one then you let me down so yeah i like it mm. let's keep going 
so then, unless you want to say more things about this second chorus, then there's a then a piano comes in playing a chord jun, 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 to lead into a saxophone solo, mm-hmm. which is a ten bar saxophone solo. We can play it if you want, and yeah. it's got a couple. In, in yeah, it. yeah, you should play it. One forty four is around there. Okay, should be. Let's hear this saxophone. It's a really beautiful melody, and it, it brings a lot to the song. I think this needs. This is like a really great place for to let the listener sort of chill out, enjoy this melodic saxophone solo. Hmm. And this is very different, I think, from like, um, let's say, um, the big man Clarence Clemens with Bruce Springsteen, where he, a lot of his solos will be like blasting like a long sustained note with a lot of power showing the power this one is not like a power solo this is is uh is a different feel to it so enjoy this saxophone solo Right, and then we're into the final verse, which you're, you can comment on the sax solo if you like, or you could talk about the next verses later. Uh, let's just say that that sax solo was really nice. And yeah. Yeah, it sounds really good. And you're right, it's, it doesn't have that kind of King Curtis kind of just blaring one note. There's a lot of notes there. In a song that's going to have cello and violin, I like that there's a bit of a Baroqueness to this song, right? Mm-hmm. And, and all of it, it's just a beautiful song. The more It's a good song to actually analyze because then you get to like it more. It's one of the ones where I don't think we've ever done where we've ruined our enjoyment of a song by analyzing it. No, but it's is, true. Yeah, this is definitely one where you get more pleasure of it. I always wanted to know what I like about the song, and now I'm discovering that. So on this third and final verse, he says, two dozen other stupid reasons. So a nice uh, callback to the first verse, right, in this first line, why we should suffer for this. And this this, and the it in the first verse are still sort of hanging, right? Mm. Um, don't bother trying to explain them, like what we're trying to do. Just hold my hand while I come to a decision on it so we got that again i I think that's brilliant to bring the while i come to a decision on it back because that's such a a, it's another hook of the song it's a verse hook Uh, and yeah i just love that he brings it back here i think that's awesome and then you get and then you also get the same tambourine entry there by rankin roger where he comes back the yeah because he knows that you want to hear like the ultimate example i ever have of a song that should bring something back is uh susie cream cheese by teddy and the patches right where the great riff is in there but then it turns into a it's a garage rock song that turns into a psychedelic song and you want at some point to go back to the riff and then he never does And you're like you know what you could learn a little bit of something from save it for later (laughs) is bring it back bring back the good stuff the stuff we want to hear because we want to enjoy it one more time we're simple people as humans we're simple we just want to hey that was funny do it again (laughs) Mm -hmm. there you go do it again that's what he did so yeah two dozen other stupid reasons a lot of cynicism in the songs he had dirty lovers stupid reasons why we should suffer for this don't bother trying to explain them it's it's the young person's view of the world, right? It's still a little bit of coming out of that teenage angst and still having the world is stupid. And it's before you've really agreed to join the world, right? Where you kind of just eventually go, you know what? I got to just work my jobs. I got to do these things. And then you become a real adult, arguably selling out, arguably actually graduating in a sense. But he's indecisive about it. Just hold my hand while I come to a decision on it. Do I want to? 
join the world or do I want to just keep having fun? Mm. Again, I'm kind of just throwing stuff out here and seeing if it sticks. Uh, and then that, ta- yeah, the tambourine comes back and then we get another two bar sax interlude riff solo. Uh, and then our violins with the uh, bowed sustained notes are coming back in with the piano for our final chorus, which is going to be a 14 bar chorus. So our longest chorus yet, because he makes the runaway runaway even mm-hmm. longer at the end of this one. Yeah, and then the outro begins, which I would argue is a groutro marks. I we we have a lot, but we like you know what the thing is. We must really like songs with great Groutro-marxes. outros that deserve top marks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, because this song, the outro starts at two fifty four, and you've still got about you know about forty seconds of song left. Yeah, and and that's fine because it's just a beautiful song that you kind of want to keep going. So it could have been a pop song that's under three minutes but they decided no let's just keep having those strings swelling and all the other sounds that we've made and we're gonna let you enjoy that for a little bit longer right and i think again it might have something to do with the meaning of the song it's just the arrangement of the song kind of coming together with you know this idea of entering the world joining the masses in a sense becoming an adult but yeah it's a a bit of a it does have a little of a catcher in the ryaness to it but certainly a lot of fun yeah with, with I, this, uh, you know, he does. Yeah, that. that's with, right. This yeah. is like a real Freddie Mercury moment, isn't it? You oh, don't expect yeah. like Dave Wakeling like surprises you with a Freddie Mercury moment. This must be a British thing where British bands have to go. Yeah, I'm trying to remember what he's doing when he does that uh, slightly strained TV show version. He's he's doing a, another thing. I think he's actually doing the Badadas earlier in the song he's added well, them into he does the sax because he's doing the sax part as but oh, oh okay i see okay yeah but you're right because that's under pressure right by uh yeah yeah queen with david bowie right is is under pressure with david bowie yes or, okay all right that's the one of dun, 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 dun. and it's got of course you know all the operatic stuff that you expect um yeah so uh are we do we want to have any final words on the song yeah, well, I do really like that when they do that final run away, run away, run away, let me, and just a really nice harmony on that. And then they also do a on the down, they do a thing that makes sense when you're singing the word down. It's to go down, yeah, and sort yeah. of let the down pitch descend there, just like because you're saying down, so let yeah. the pitch descend down. It makes sense and it works. That's kind of a little psychedelic too, somehow. I think. Down. There's yeah. a song by um, uh, the Dukes of Stratosphere. I don't know which one it is, but they go down, down, down. And it was I love the Dukes of Stratosphere from the first EP, Twenty Five O'clock. Everyone should go out and check it out. But they're not being discussed in this song. This is uh, Save It for Later by the Beat. So yeah, I, I, that's a good thing to mention is that the outro has extra things in there uh, with the swelling strings, with all the other instruments. It's a yeah. beautiful song. Like it's yeah. just great. It is a really great. Song. It's like an A plus song. It's, it's oh yeah, like, uh, a little little masterpiece there. Uh, the kind of thing that like Phil Spector would have been like, "Good work, guys." You know. Oh yeah, and so that's how we can lead into the next version then, because it's a song that gained the attention of one of uh, of Dave Wakeling's idols. I actually don't know if 
Pete Townsend was an idol of his, but he was definitely very happy to find out that Pete will tell the story about the song. Some of you may already know it, but this is Pete Townsend with a version from it that may be from 1986. It might be. This is a recorded version of a song because he of Save It For Later. He used to play it live with his band Deep End, which had David Gilmour in it, apparently. Um, but this version, we're not exactly sure when it was recorded or released. It doesn't really matter. It's Pete Townsend doing Save It For Later.
to wait for that string scrape at the end there it, it's uh, a harmonic it's a, a harmonic okay so uh uh let's well we'll be talking about the guitar etc this is a famous guitarist this is pete townsend i'm not going to give any kind of bio on him because i think anyone is listening to in the past garage rock podcast knows who pete townsend is and if you don't go to wikipedia he was in the who there's his bio um i guess the thing to say is that this is him solo but i think i don't know if this is him solo or if it's with this band that I didn't know he was in called Deep End with David Gilmore and some other people, some sort of super group that was playing in the 80s. Do you know about those guys? No. Okay. Well, since I don't know anything about them, we're not going to talk about them. But Pete Townsend doing this song. uh, Do you want to tell the story about, I'm assuming you read the famous story of how Pete Townsend called Dave Wakeling? Yeah, yeah. No, you can go ahead and tell it. I, okay. Yeah. I'll I'll do it to the best. The reason why I was kind of giving it to you is like, oh, I see how if I can remember it. So Dave Wakeling tells a story that sometime in the mid eighties, I guess it must have been, he gets a, a phone call, someone else answers the phone and says, Pete Townsend's on the phone for you. And of course he doesn't believe it. This is one of those stories where you don't believe someone is calling you, it turns out to actually be them. And he says, Yeah, sure it's Pete Townsend. He calls every Saturday around this time, doesn't he? Very Dave Wakeling thing to say. And then uh, it turns out it's Pete Townsend. And he says, oh, I guess uh, Dave Wakeling answers it kind of jokingly. Oh, hello, Pete. And Pete Townsend says, oh, uh, hello, Dave. So me and uh, Dave <laughs> Gilmore are uh, are here trying to figure out the chords to your song, Dave, Save It For Later. And we just can't figure it out. And so he gives the explanation of the dad, dad ad, and not the dad gad. And I guess Pete Townsend is relieved to find out, oh, good. Well, we was couldn't figure out the chords. We were breaking our fingers trying to find how to do the song. And then eventually, because he informs him, we're trying to do this song. We're going to play it live. Then Dave Wakeling gets invited to a, eventually a performance of the the band or Pete Townsend solo, where he gets to sit in the very first seat in the front row. And he talks about how special a moment was it was for Dave Wakeling himself. So that's the story of, and it, to me, when it just seems like a perfect song for Pete Townsend, once you hear him do it, you go, yeah, yeah. Pete Townsend, you could feel like how he wishes he wrote it, which I think is something he said. He thinks is one of the greatest songs ever, but it's just something kind of Pete Townsend's version. that makes it seem like a Pete Townsend song somehow. And I think you know what I mean by that, but maybe you can tell me what your impressions are of this song. 
One of the things that interests me most about this song versus the next version of the song is when Pete Townsend sing the song, sings the song, you can tell that he takes this song deadly seriously. Mm-hmm. Like there is nothing goofy about the way that he plays this song. Like it's, and this is a song that has humor in it. I would say like when he, when Dave Wakeling sings the line, just hold my hand while I come to a decision on it. There, There's humor in, in singing that way, right? Even though it's a serious song, but Pete Townsend takes Pete Townsend yeah. takes it even more seriously. He's like, "Hey, everybody, this is my favorite song. I sit, this is a song I sit and listen to by myself in a room alone and think mm-hmm. like this is what music is all about." And he delivers it accordingly. Whereas to me, the next version of the song, they they take it more playfully, and it makes sense because if you look at the first version, the or the original of the song, it does have very it's very serious because there is that stuff like run away run away where you're like yeah there's hmm. there's some serious thinking through going on here but there's also like sooner or later you're late here for you hit the ground right yeah. like where it's also a little bit goofy and you're like yeah and that's which was, oh, these are all things that make the song great but pete, pete townsend and he even like he likes singing the song so much he has to sing it for five minutes it's like yeah, yeah i'm not yeah. gonna stop i'm gonna keep doing these three chords and yeah. just, until someone either turns like unplugs my like takes the guitar out of my hand yeah, yeah. There's all kinds of things going on here, especially the way he sings it and uh, the things that he adds, uh, how he strips it down. But then the things that are that are kind of, uh, you know, the piano becomes very prominent in this version. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's an important part of the original version. But here, it's it. You know what I want to say it right now is the piano sounds like Baba O'Reilly keyboard. I don't even know if it's a yeah. piano or if it's a marimba, but that boom boom biddly boom boom biddly part of the piano yeah. is really surprising. And I'm like, well, this sounds like he's doing a, almost an analog version of the ba- Baba O'Reilly famous keyboard sound in there. And the more I think about the song, the more I think it makes sense because he's about this kind of lyrical theme of youth turning into age or youth against it. Because my generation won't get fooled again, stuff like that. It's Even just legal matter. We did an episode yeah. on legal matter. And yeah. that's one where he's like, oh, I made a mistake. I thought I wanted to be an adult and now I don't want to anymore. Yeah. And even when Pete Townsend is like 45 years old, he's still singing songs with those themes. It seems yeah. like if you look at his yeah. album, um, Empty Glass, he still has songs that seem to be like, oh, I don't want to work. I don't, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. And Quadrophenia, which was a movie that came out in 80, is them reminiscing about, even though The Who, I don't remember, I don't think The Who's in it in any way or mentioned, but maybe they are, but it's about mods. So he's thinking about his youth. He's thinking of the subculture that he belonged to. At the earliest time. So it's just, it does seem to be really resonant with him. And it just makes sense. The way he sings it, again, I, I'm just going to say the same thing I just said, is that it seems to – he just turns it into a Pete Townsend song. So, mm-hmm. of course, the comments – one thing I like is that no one's I – I didn't really read anyone doing that thing you often have on the comments. And since we're a, essentially a compare and contrast musical podcast – um, often people are like, this version is the best. Forget about the original version. That one sucks. But people are pretty reverent. They're saying, you know what? We really love Pete Townsend's version. It might be my favorite, but I love the original too. Because if you're a reasonable person, that's the way you should feel. That the first song, this is a great example of a song taken by someone who covers it and makes something else with it. But it's still recognizably the song you know. Yeah, but he's it, taking that yearning of it that and it is really up front here. Yeah, he really takes the the sort of heartbreakingness of the song and and hangs on that. And mm-hmm. it 
it is interesting how well his voice works because his yeah. singing voice is nothing like Dave Wakeling's singing voice, but that doesn't seem to bother him that he doesn't have that sort of uh, deep, gruff resonance that Dave Wakeling has and applies in the original version. But he takes his Pete Townsend sort of more uh, tenor kind of tenor squeal sort of, uh, which is, he's a good singer. Um, so I'm not putting down a singing. I, I didn't mean to be, but it's a very different voice from Dave Wakeling's voice. And it works terrific. Yeah, it works really well. I think he really comes together on those, uh, there's a lot of staccato phrasing, but especially he really loves it with the chorus. You legs give way, you hit the ground, save it for later. Don't run away and let me down. He's doing it that way. And it's, it, and you can hear a more of a quaver in the voice and, yeah, it, it's just something more like you can see it as someone who's remembering the experience of coming into adulthood and remembering it with this kind of almost, uh, yeah, I, there's a yearning in the song. A word that I used to make fun of all the time when I was young, <laughs> yearning, but now I'm like, ah, I'm old and I've yearned. So now that I've officially yearned, I'm I'm going to hear, when I hear yearning, I respond to it. And this is a yearning song for sure. It's and in passion. You're right that Pete Townsend has is really good at saying lines like, I don't know how I'm meant to act with all of you lot. Like yeah, just the yeah. way that he enunciates or something. It's really good. Yeah, I love the enunciation throughout the song here. And then he does things that are really vulnerable. The sounding is like the way he like, let me down. He's kind of doing it in a way that you can hear it. And then he says, run away. And he does little things like that where – he adds like he i guess it's part of it is that he doesn't do a lot of that extending the verses or you know with the bars but he adds these sort of ad libs because there's a one point where he goes save all that stuff for later and i like that too so and the biggest thing he adds is where which is interesting is like why would you choose to do this is he adds that why don't you hold oh me? yeah why yeah. don't you hold me and kiss me like that's an interesting thing to add right like what's yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't really know where it comes from, but it's just from Pete Townsend's mind. He's he, it's how he responds to the song. I guess it's 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 that it's he must be reading the song then as about the lovers. There's something here about the person that you were making love to. You know, when you hold my hand while I come to a decision on it, he wants this person to help him make the decision. It seems like Pete Townsend seems to really like showing vulnerability in a song i even think of a song like uh this is from tommy but he has that one song that starts with the see me feel mm. me touch me heal yeah. me and just to have like a moment where it's almost silence in the background i think it is and be going like see me feel me touch me heal me it's like that kind of vulnerability you get with this hold hey, me and kiss me think about these british rockers that were born during or just after the first or second world war. Sorry, not the first one. <laughs> I'll think of all those rockers from the 1940s, like <laughs> Tommy Dorsey. <laughs> Anyways. Um, uh, so Lennon, um, I'm thinking of Roger Waters, you know, with the wall and stuff. Yeah. And then Pete Townsend about how they go back to their childhood and how traumatic it seems to be to them. Now in this song, there isn't necessarily a childhood trauma. I guess you kind of could say that, but yeah, they, these guys seem to be deeply affected by, uh, the experiences they had growing up with fathers dying in the war and such such like, uh, or abandoning them. I, I think Pete Townsend, I was reading a bit about him because I was really curious about his personal life. And uh, who. And it seemed like he, I was surprised. If, I mean, I'm sure he's had affairs. I shouldn't say that because I am. Matter of fact, I shouldn't say it for, you know, the fact that Pete Townsend probably listens to us. And that's it. I'm getting my lawyers. <laughs> it's a legal matter now. But um that he seemed to be married to he's been married to two women but one for a very long time and then a second wife so i expected somehow pete townsend to be 
much more checkered history with his uh, marital history. But it seems like he's kind of, I don't know if you could say that someone who's been divorced, I'm not saying anything bad about people who divorce. Um, but just a s- sense that I expected him to be a little bit more infidelitish. Is that a word? Um, it is now. It's a, just put it in our, uh, in the past glossary. Infidelitish. <laughs> Infidelitous. Anyways, uh, I'm sure that's the right word. I've been, I haven't been teaching for a while, so my vocabulary has really suffered. But, uh, yeah, I'm just kind of interested in, in just this, uh, these guys having this vulnerability, like, in a big way. So, Anyways, that's just something that I'm thinking of here. But that hold me section is definitely one thing that makes the song longer, right? Because it turns out to be almost five minutes long. Yeah. Um, what else do I want to say about this version other than I really – so those big piano chords, I think really – oh, the Jaco Pistorius bass. Now, the, f- the fretless – yeah, the fretless yeah. bass. That that fretless bass sound, I love it. I really love it. And yeah. it's now, I think – maybe justifiably so really associated with the eighties, but I yep. think it's just such a great sound. Uh, I've always loved it. Yeah. It's a weird sound. Um, there's a, I think that I'm not re- fr- willing to commit to great. You're <laughs> only to weird. No, 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 no. Uh, I, I will commit to great because this, the album that made me realize it was a great sound is I want to plug this album that people, a lot of people don't know North of a miracle by Nick Hayward. Nick Hayward was the lead singer of oh, Haircut yeah, 100. Yeah, yeah. And he put out a really great solo album called North of a Miracle. Uh, and there's a lot of that bass sound in it. And I remember hearing it going, to me, I was like, Isn't that kind of a jazzy bass sound? Like it's something like ECM Records or something. I mean, I must have known it somehow, or I must have later kind of figured out the association to Jaco Pistorius, the famous bassist, who I don't know if he invented the sound. or The fretless bass obviously existed. But you're right. It is it, also Joni Mitchell. There's a lot of Joni Mitchell that has that. Also, Lou Reed, he played, he is, I think it's Fernando Saunders is a bass player on Lou Reed albums that plays a lot of fretless and became a very... I think even on like Blue Mask and stuff is Fernando okay. Saunders. I, I got to say, when I was a kid growing up in the 80s and a guy on a video had a fretless bass, I always thought it was the squarest thing. I was like, no way, man. That fretless bass looks so lame to me. But not knowing really that that sound, it's almost a yearning bass sound mm, or something. There's something about it. I mean, to me, there's something interesting. So I say weird, but I mean it in a positive way and a sound that it creates a kind of unusual now think compared to the other 80s bass sound like the knee deep in the hoopla starship bass sound that boom 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 bass yeah. that's just too processed for me although we talked about it i think it was in go no go's version of whatever song uh she loves you i don't know if it was that one that had that kind of bass sound in it um but uh i i, I came to love the fretless bass sound and i think that was the album north of a miracle that kind of created a entry point for me. So I'm definitely pro fretless now, but I don't, I think it, I, I had to be converted. I had to be converted. Mm. So I think it works really well in this song. Yeah. I mean, I want people to go out and listen to this song and I also want them to buy North of a Miracle. And so that Nick Haber can come to the Commodore ballroom to, where he's playing come. all of yeah, no, so Nick here can come to the, com- to to the, the Commodore com- Ballroom. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, we got to do it every time we use the word now, uh, which is really bringing me back to being a teenager 
And when there was Making anything those that, kinds of jokes, yeah. yeah, those kind of jokes endlessly and just and then I realized I became an adult when I didn't laugh at them anymore, when I just passed them over. And if anyone else laughed, I'd go like, grow up like after a certain point, you can't laugh at anymore. Although I think you can, quite frankly. But so I think that's part of an interesting uh, part of the song. But uh, and I do like the idea of now of we've we've talked about artists who just play an entire album that isn't actually that well known or it's not a classic album. So, you know, Dinosaur Jr. is in town to play all of Bug, their 1989 album. So North of Miracle, Nick Hayward is now going to play the entire album because it would be really great for me and maybe five other people that live in this city. But I'd, I'd be paying big top dollar for that. But I would want that fretless bass. If you mm. didn't get a fretless bass player, I don't want any part of it. So yeah. anyways, fretless bass, good sound. Um, the why don't you hold me section? I don't know if we've really quite analyzed it enough, but do you want to say more about it or do you feel like we've... I, I don't have more to say about it, but I want to talk more about it. Yeah. Because I think the fact that he adds something that is like quite separate from the song and isn't even really a sentiment necessarily expressed in the original song, I think it that could be the key to unlocking what he's hearing in this song is like... Yeah. Uh, he, he's hearing something that other people aren't necessarily hearing, which happens in pop songs a lot because the thing about a pop song yeah. is you kind of do obscure the meaning with the popness of it. Is it you just make it radio ear candy and then no one worries like us sometimes. We listen to songs and we're like, I don't know, it just sounds cool, you know? And that is the correct way mm-hmm. to, to consume it a lot of the time. But you can hear here that Pete Townsend is hearing the song. It's, it means a lot to him. To him. Yeah. And what I wish we did now that I think about it is before we even uh, started talking about the beat song, the original, is to just say, hey, after we've listened to the original version, just without even thinking about the lyrics, just write down what you think, what the emotions you have about mm. the song are. Just write them down. And we'd probably have a pretty, there'd be a lot of words. You, you know, you could write as many as you wanted, and it would probably be at some point overlapping with what Pete Townsend's doing here. But as you pointed out, he's not focusing on the thing you're going to hear in the third version, which is uh, a kind of uh, a bit more of the punk part of the song. Like the, mm. the, the beat were kind of a punk band in that they come out of that era. They didn't bother sounding super punk because they were ska, two-tone. But Pete Townsend's not hearing the 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 juven, juvenileness of the song. He seems to find the youthfulness sacred, right? Like, and mm. so the, the feeling that's of a good, I think that's a fair and good word to use. Yeah. The idea of remembering your youth and remembering it as a time where you almost hold it up and go, I was lost, but that feeling of being lost was meaningful in itself. There was something in it that even now, because I think you can always feel it. I think it's a through line for a lot of people. I think Pete Townsend is a guy who feels very deeply. I always hated him in the 80s because there was an interview with him that they would show sometimes on TV. Uh, I must. I watched a lot of music TV, so that's why I saw it a few times. He goes, you know, when people talk about, I'm just going to do a fake British accent. I won't do it. Uh, when people talk about, Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin, you know, they're remembering them as rock stars, but they were my fucking friends, man. He was really mad about how people are, I don't know, maybe disrespecting them or not revering them or talking about the tawdriness of their deaths or something. But it always seemed to me like he was bragging, you know, like how good of a friend were you to Jimi Hendrix or, you know, like, did you hang out a lot? Uh, anyways, I don't know why I would quiz him on that. I think it's fair. I think it's fair. It's like, yeah. really? Like, would you say you hung out with Jimi Hendrix 
more than 20 times or less than 20? Like, yeah. Oh, hang out. I don't mean you went and saw him at a show. Wait. Yeah. Like if Eric Komernicki died of a heroin overdose or choked his own vomit, I'd be like, he was my fucking fucking (laughs) podcast co-host partner. We didn't really get along, but you know, (laughs) now I, now I, I just found another co-host and you know, he's doing fine too. He, he talks a lot about like the cords and stuff. That's what I needed. Then he died too. (laughs) He died too of choking on his own vomit because he was living a rock and roll life here. Um, But yeah, I think. If we ever start doing like nine songs per episode, that could really happen to us because we we'll we'll go get another like beer for each song, and then we'll be like, oh yeah, we want, it got to be too much. Oh yeah, we we have been progging it up for sure. So I mean, <laughs> luckily our, our more recent episodes have been a little bit shorter. This one maybe not so much, but it's a three songer. So, um, but yeah, it's a good thing to kind of linger on is that this is something that Pete Townsend adds to the song and. Um, by no means, if you're going to cover the song, are you going to do that, why don't you hold me? I honestly think the first time I heard it, I was a little bit like, ooh, I don't know about this. And then uh, since then, I'm like, nope, it works for me. It's fine. It's Pete Townsend. It's not to say – because I'm not – I've never been a huge Who fan, especially later Who. I like their mod stuff about 66, 67, and then from there, I'm like, okay, they're obviously a really good band, but I do not respond to – the 70s who they to me are arena rock and it just doesn't really hit my ears i can like songs by them but i never really thought of them i remember having a friend when i was at mount royal uh matt mckay i'm gonna say his name and uh he talked about the 1999 simpsons episode where uh the who uh, there's an episode where the Springfield gets divided by a wall and then the who come along to sing won't get fooled again i think is the one and Matt told me that when he, he heard the cartoon version of the who singing, won't get fooled again to break down the walls. He cried and I made fun of him and yeah. he's a Pete Townsend. He's a Pete Townsend. And I'm more of a Dave Wakeling, I guess, or maybe more of a Sean Nelson of Harvey danger or something. Or like, like in the movie bedazzled with Brendan Fraser and Elizabeth Hurley, where, okay. where I like Brendan, your movie references. They're really good. That's where, another thing that the co-host has to do. Brendan, uh, a, a genie visits Brendan Fraser and will grant him any wishes. And he wants to be able to like meet more women. So he's making different wishes to get to meet more women. And of course they all backfire was what happens on all TV shows with a genie. And mm-hmm. at one point he says, he, uh, I think he, he gets, he says he wants like huge muscles or something, but then the woman like brushes him off because he, he's, uh, just a meathead. Right. So mm-hmm. then he makes a wish that he wants to be like the most sensitive man in the world or something to that effect. And then, he, and then it's going well and he's talking to the woman and, and he's making great conversation with her and then he like sees a sunset and he's like, Oh my God, the sunset <laughs> is so beautiful. And he starts to cry. And he's like, I got to get out of here. This guy's like, <laughs> he's too sensitive. Yeah, that's In a the, way, the Matt McKay, Pete Townsend. Yeah. Yeah. Pete Townsend is a guy who, um, uh, is that 70s example of in a way you can tell that he's a rock and roll dude who has an edge to him right like that guy who swears about they were more fucking friends yeah which i just hated but he's also the guy who feels the yearning within him he hears this song and he goes well don't you hold me and you can tell that it's just his sort of ad lib of the song and i bet you when he was jamming on it with david gilmore and the rest of the band they were like what's he doing oh he's just being pete he's being pete he's being sensitive and it works because he sells millions of records so we're gonna let him do it because it works really well and it's really genuine like i don't think it's fake like there's Mm. nothing fake about this version i'm surprised that i like it so much because pete townsend uh being 
an artist is just not someone I've revered. I think, fine, I love I Can't Explain and stuff like that. But when I heard this version, I went, wow, this really is quite powerful. I guess I have a new respect for him. So, hey, Pete, you've made it. You converted me. I'm now on your side. I don't think I'm going to be buying any Pete Townsend solo albums. Although I always liked that song, Let My Love Open the Door, when I was a kid. So. Yeah, that's on Empty Glass. That's the one I, ha- I have that uh, one. Yeah, but I, I also have the one that he he does a – it's an album that he made with Ronnie Lane, and like half the songs are Pete Townsend songs and half are Ronnie Lane songs. That's a good album too. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. I like Ronnie Lane because I like uh, Ogden's Nut Gone Flake. It's a song that – or an album that you and I have uh, butted heads against at certain points. Anyways. Yeah, I got to give that one another chance one of these days. Got some great songs, but I also know that that music hall psychedelia doesn't go over so well with some people, including the Gruesomes and Eric Komernicki. Um, do are we finished with this song? Because it does. We should mention it ends with kind of a long piano chord, and we have that harmonic as you pointed out. Um, I wanted to just reiterate that I think the staccato phrasing is the really specific kind of Pete Townsend edition, along with, of course, the why don't you hold me section? I feel like more should be said about the song. At the same time, I also think we need to move on, but do you have any last words? Yeah, I do want to say that he takes the, uh, the, the basic guitar riff that is done by Dave Wakeling in the original version where it, which doesn't require as much adornment because there is, because it is such a full and great arrangement. Whereas this, this one is stripped down. It's more Spartan, this Pete Townsend one. And he does it like a really like nice, fancy acoustic guitar part that's recorded beautifully as well. But then later, when he starts playing chords, you hear that Pete Townsend is definitely one of the greatest rhythm guitar players of all time because he's doing <laughs> really fast drums that are ve- that are in great time uh, that Pete Townsend is famous for. So great guitar playing on this version too, which is easy to miss because it's such a beautiful version. And even those piano chords are very Who-like too. Dong, dong, yeah, yeah. dong. Yeah, and you, you big, almost imagine, big. even though they're not guitar, I imagine the windmill, right? That's the famous mm-hmm. windmill guitar thing. So, yeah, there's some. He turned it into kind of a Pete Townsend Who song. He heard what was Who about it, and mm-hmm. I kind of think that's amazing. I think that's like a guy who's got a really good ear and a really good nose. I got to make a nose reference too. You could see that he could have been in a bar somewhere, and it came on, and he turned to the person next to him and said, "Who sings this song?" And they were like, "The Beat." And then he was like, "No." Who sings this song? (laughs) Yes, yes, exactly. Um, I like it. So let's move on then to our final version, which we will talk about maybe not as long as the other ones. But this is by Harvey Danger from 1999. Just 
Okay, that's Harvey Danger from 1999. Remember 1999? I remember 1999 because I went to see the movie that this this is on the soundtrack of the movie 200 Cigarettes. I went on a date. I'll name the person's first name, Gail. I won't say her last name because she may not want to be uh, uh, associated with me. But uh, we went on the one date to, uh, to see the movie 200 Cigarettes, which this song is featured on. And I have some more information about the song because I watched that 23 minute I thought you were going to say about Gail. I've actually got some more information about Gail here. <laughs> I, I could talk more about Gail, but I think I'm going to respect her privacy. The intern uh, collected some info about Gail. <laughs> well, if you let me know if Gail's still around, uh, that would be great. If uh, you know, But we, we were friends, so the date didn't really turn into us being uh, lovers, dirty lovers. Uh but we did watch the movie 200 Cigarettes, which this was recorded for. This isn't from any of their albums. It wasn't released as a single. Uh, this is Harvey Danger. They were formed in 1982 in Seattle. Uh, let me mention the members of the band. They don't exist anymore as a band. Sean Nelson, who's the vocalist and plays keyboards. Uh, Jeff Lynn, not the guy from the Traveling Wilburys and Electric Light Orchestra. It's L-I-N, guitar uh, and violin. So he might be the violin player. He plays other instruments. Um, which I didn't write down. Aaron Huffman on bass and Evan Salt was the drummer at this time of the band's lineup. You know them all from, if anyone's listening and you're remembering Harvey Danger, they're the guys that had the song Flagpole Sitta. Uh, I'm not well. That song from 1997 was their one and only hit. So that's the story of Harvey Danger, sadly. One hit, and then this really great cover. I think it's a good cover. Anyways, maybe not a great cover. A good cover of Save It For Later. Yeah, it's. I'd say at least an excellent cover. Yeah, yeah. We're getting into, like, (laughs) adjective tiering here, which which gets difficult. But, well, so I really like this cover, and it sounds huge. Here's one Mm -hmm. thing. Like, you listen to the other versions, and when the chorus hits in this one, it's a massive sound, and I really like that because the – other versions, they don't really blow up the chorus in the way they do with this one. Where mm-hmm. they, um, and I'm going to say this one thing about it that will sound like a criticism. I don't mean it is one. Well, I have to say that. now. It seems like now I have to say that every time I say anything that could be perceived negative. But so when we did um, She Loves You, we did that go, no, go version of She Loves You. And mm-hmm. I, I was saying that to me, even though that's a totally obscure song that n- – no one even in was it Finland? Sweden, that Sweden, Sweden, I think. Can't yeah. remember. Anymore. Very different places. But yeah, yeah. I don't. <laughs> and uh, so, and I was like, yeah. If someone asked me, play me a song like an alien lands mm. in front of the house, and the first question any alien would ask would be, play me a song that <laughs> represents the, the 1980s, <laughs> and I would play them. She loves you by Go No Go, even though it was a complete non-hit. And yeah. if someone said, play me a song that represents the 90s. I think I would play this song. Oh, okay. There's so many elements to me that are so 90s, like that drum beat that comes in early on. It, it, okay, so Is this doom. Yeah, yeah. Let, let me play it. Let me play it. Is that the B 
beat I'm talking about though. It's when they do they put that rap beat in. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You. Yeah. That comes in later. Uh, uh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's almost like a sample. Yeah, because it's so Beck. It's like people like Beck were all doing you're right, that at yeah. that time. Yeah, and you're absolutely so right. So much. And then here's another thing from the '90s that people really love to do. So, so in the that actual thing. save it for later, they don't just say the title <laughs> all of the time. Song. So, <laughs> and then you go to the end of the song, and they're like. So in the 90s, you either had to not say that, like, the title had to never appear in the song, and the song would be called, like, Mayonnaise, but they would never say that. (laughs) Or else you smashing pumpkins, yeah, out of the song, yeah. You (laughs) just say it all the time. So here's another thing. And it's just, like, it has a lot of 90s. Just the production, to me, sounds so 90s. Yeah, 1999 was a period of sort of hip-hop meeting indie, and and people might not really remember it. But there were these bands, especially from where the, these guys are from Seattle, and there was a band called Land of the Loops, and they were the kind of band who did kind of cute. See, they had this one song called Multifamily Garage Sale. It's really great. It's actually like an amazing song. But it's basically taking kind of a hip hop drum loop. I don't know if remember if that song specifically does it, but there was another band called Kitty Craft. These were like micro indie bands, mm-hmm. uh, but they would do the thing where they'd, you'd sample some sort of cool drum beat, but then you'd have kind of a cute song over it. So it'd be boom, boom, and then it would be i'm lonely and i feel depressed you know it would be kind of like that and so that little part where the drums seem to be sampled that and then you've got that kind of wow wow that sort of middle portion of the song it's almost like a record scratch but not quite yeah yeah exactly that's you're right and then the other thing i think about the the way way they start off the song save it for later it's like it's actually literally the title in the sense that when you look at a book and you see the title you go oh save it for later and then (laughs) and they're sort of saying this is the song we're about to play for you (laughs) and then i like what if every song had to do that by law and you were like you're doing roxanne (laughs) i love this idea yeah yeah, like roxanne by well they already actually does that some songs do that she loves you starts out with she loves you yeah okay fine but other songs like mayonnaise by the smashing pumpkins would have to start off with mayonnaise (laughs) and then however the rest of the song goes i don't remember another song like creep uh, by Radiohead with start with creep and then well, however it starts. <laughs> it's actually sort of like at concerts how they always go like and Weldon Hunter on the bass and then over you know where they, yeah. they do like a credits they like kind of do opening yeah. credits or, or closing credits for their shows. Yeah yeah so so I like that it's actually providing the title of the song as if it's the front cover of an album or a book yeah. or something like that. Oh, so let's save it for later because he sang it. So now I know. So that's a helpful thing to do. So think about all that, but you're right. That Beck sound that, that kind of creeps in there to me, it doesn't really sound dated, but it probably is dated because I remember listening to music. Like there was a bit more of that around and it didn't last too long, but that kind of uh, indie guys doing hip hop or at least using drum loops. Because it's a yeah. sampled thing is what it sounds like. Yeah. So, it's, yeah, you're right. It's kind of funny because to me, Flagpole Sitter is one of the great – I don't really like the song that much, but it does really stand out as an example from – this is a one-hit wonder from the 90s. You think about other songs like Breakfast at Tiffany's by whoever did it. Uh, I wanted to say Vertical Horizon, but I can't remember. All the bands are sort of interchangeable. Who did Breakfast at Tiffany's? Anyways, it does matter. We got to get Alentandra on this and find out the information that we want to know. But you're right. This is a very 90s version. Um, and as I pointed out, it's from the album. So uh, one thing I will say, too, I know I'm still giving background to the song, but we've started talking about it, too. We're also in the third song and we've been drinking. Um, 
So it turns out that the band from that video essay that I'll link to on our Facebook, although I've been pretty bad at linking things that I say I'm going to be doing. So sorry, astronauts, but they were asked by their label, hey, we want you to do this song for this soundtrack for a movie that's set in 1982. It's set on New Year's Eve. I don't remember if it's New Year's Eve turning into 82 or if it's turning into 83. I can't remember. But the movie's actually pretty good. It's got Paul Rudd. It's got Courtney Love is a major player in that. It's got a lot of sort of people that you remember from the 90s. And um, Christina Christina Ricci is in it. And, and anyways, and also one of the Afflecks is in it. Uh, oh, two of the Afflecks are in it. Anyways, they said, we have a list of songs from that period that you could cover. And then somehow they got kind of coerced into doing this one. And they didn't really care for the song. They didn't really have any special feelings for it. So when they recorded it, they weren't really necessarily like playing a song that they revere. They're doing it on the label's command. So that's one thing I learned from that. This could explain a bit about how, like what I said about with Pete Townsend, you hear this reference Mm -hmm. in his Mm -hmm. version and this one, you don't hear any reference. No, you hear them kind of almost, uh, Sean Nelson is the singer is kind of sneering at points. Uh, The way he goes, yeah. Well, that's what makes it a little bit punk, I think, is that it's this is a snotty vocal, I would say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, uh, yeah, he really, it, it's always about the phrasing, because we didn't talk so much about Dave Wakeling's phrasings after we said he was going to do it, but we talked a fair amount about Pete Townsend doing certain kind of phrasing. And then we've got Sean Nelson of Harvey Danger giving it a kind of phrasing that adds to the song or gives it a different kind of feel, which in this case is, as you say, kind of punk, punk vocal, uh, still has that, that same riff though. Jing, get, jing, get, get, jing, get, get, jing, get. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What and, do you want to say about the song? Keep going. And then he, the way he says a lot of lines are like black air and seven seas are rotting through. Yeah. It's just like, <laughs> what can you do? Yeah, well, he says rotten through. He says rotten. Well, rotten. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that does something kind of snotty and punk about that. But then one thing I really like, I don't even know if this is what they say, is for sure instead of na 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 they say da 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 But I think at the very beginning they might say dot dot dot. And I love that because it reminds me of the greatest unheralded hit that should be played all the time. Da 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 by Trio? Priest oh Shaggy doing that girl. So <laughs> when I was 19 years old, I don't know if I've talked about this on the podcast, but w- when I was 19, I got a job at a nightclub that was a restaurant during the week. And some would know this uh, chain of bars. It They probably are still some around, but it was called Senior Frogs. Oh, yeah. It yeah. opened up in Edmonton, Alberta, and I was working as a, as a uh, busboy. At Senior Frogs. And Senior Frogs, we had the greatest DJ ever. This guy knew how to light up a dance floor like nothing else. And one song that he loved to play was a hit from around that time, the song That Girl by Shaggy and Maxie Priest. And now, I love a lot of songs by Shaggy, but there was a great line that Shaggy sang in That Girl where he would go up. Like, first of all, his little verse thing, he would say something like, She's outspoken. I'm heartbroken, just the kind of girl to keep my love life open. Something like that. But then he would go, she's outspoken, I'm heartbroken, just the kind of girl to make me dot, dot, dot. Which is such a great line that (laughs) he would do the dot, dot. Because first of all, 
that Shaggy would have to dot, dot, dot something is hilarious because I've never heard of any sexual act. Shaggy wasn't completely comfortable (laughs) describing in its entirety. So it's like, Shaggy, what did you have to dot, dot, dot? What's happening that you, I mean, I know this is for a single. You're going to release it as a video, but what are you not telling us here? Yeah, because he's the guy that did It Wasn't Me and that's all about that stuff. So, yeah. Yeah, he describes very specific acts sometimes. So. So I was really happy to hear the dot, dot, dot here. I think it should be in more songs. Um, the other thing then, the dot, dot, dot is like an ellipsis, right? You know, yes. dot, three dots, that sort of, so we'll just make that straight. But also, now that you mentioned that, for years, and I don't remember what song it is, there's a song by Shabba Ranks and Maxi Priest. And all I remember is at the start of it is Shabba, Maxi Priest with Shabba. And I've been saying that for years in my mind sometimes if you see me looking kind of contemplative and you go i wonder what Weldon's thinking about i might just be going shaba maxi priest <laughs> with shaba and i think that was in 88 or something that i first heard it and i don't even remember the song i just remember the opening of shaba ranks saying that he's the guy that did uh here come is he the, no eni kamozi did here comes the hot stepper anyways and um, Shabba Ranks is awesome too. He's Mr. Loverman. That's it, Mr. Lo- is he? No, because uh, Shaggy is Mr. Lover Lover. No, no, they're both Mr. Lo- no, Shaggy oh. is Mr. Lover Lover, and Shabba Ranks is Mr. Loverman. Mr. Lover. Because Shabba oh, Ranks right. had that song, Mr. Loverman. Shabba, yeah. Shabba, Mr. Loverman. <laughs> I love guys that say their names a lot. Oh yeah. That's. I mean, that's the great thing about rap, and I guess. Uh, reggae and dance hall and things like that. And it kind of comes together because, you know, we started talking about the beat and they're a, a band that has Caribbean influences. So we're kind of coming back full force. To, we're not talking about Harvey Danger anymore, which I like because Harvey Danger, this version of song is great. I don't really know any other Harvey Danger songs besides the first one we talked about, uh, Flypole Sitta, and then this one. And that's basically my knowledge of Harvey Danger. I think they had another song that I remember hearing on the radio a couple times that was their follow-up and it just didn't, you know, didn't take but yeah the dot 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 is great the, and then of course the way one thing i really love is because he's an american guy he has to do the line i what does he say i'm gonna look at the lyrics here um i don't know how i'm meant to act with all of any he says you lot you can tell that he's giving it a little bit of a look i'm an american guy saying you lot so it's yeah. again it's got that snottiness of uh again you can feel that maybe they're being sort of asked to do the song as a favor they don't really want to do it they don't really revere it but then it really adds to then the the feel of the song is that you lot there's a sneeringness to it um but i i, I was gonna say i really do love that drum pattern that start doing yeah and by the way you got to watch the video for it because they just intersperse something they used to do in the 80s all the time is just show clips from the movie i used to complain about it all the time you know a song like shakedown or takedown or whatever it was by uh bob seeger would just be from the movie stakeout or whatever yeah, it was right um but this one they kind of put the band members in the movie a little bit and it works really well i think uh dave Chappelle is in the movie by the way too so you've got dave Chappelle driving the drummer around and the drummer's actually playing the drums in the back which is just kind of hilarious uh the drummer for uh, harvey danger evan salt but um so I, I like some of the things they add to it and, the, yeah, the things that you were talking about. But that music box element in the chorus is really important, Yes, too. yeah, that's a key part. And also they take the strings, the, the, the bowed sustained strings, which are in the chorus of the original, and they put them in the verse yeah, of this you're right. version. Uh, and, and then because in the chorus they do that huge sound with the music box arpeggios, which you're referring to, which and, and it all works very well. It's a... 
that video essay that I referred to that I watched, which was really good because I'm like, hey, this is a fellow, uh, you know, someone doing something in the same line as us is talking about a song for way too long. Mm. Uh, Harvey Danger's version, which we've now done probably for about the same amount of time, uh, but with less information. Well, no, we're doing our way that we do it. But uh, was mentioned that the music box idea was kind of taken from some other band that Harvey Danger liked. I think it might be Death Cab for Cutie did a song or some band along those lines. Maybe it's the postal service or something like that. Hey, I heard a post. <laughs> I heard a postal service song at shoppers drug Mart a couple days ago. And I was like, if anyone's voice should just be cloned by AI and stuck on a shitload of songs, <laughs> it's gotta be Ben Gibbard's Gibbard. postal service voice. Yeah. There's something there- about it. That I was just like, this, this sounds like an AI voice. Yeah, you're right. There, I, I don't have a lot of reverence for uh, the postal service. I remember when I started, a uh, girlfriend I had at the time liked the Postal Service, and I just could not endure listening to a post. Something about the I, – I, that's when I was really losing my faith in indie or, or my belief uh. in indie. I liked indie music, and I remember around the time I moved to Calgary uh, – sorry, Calgary. I moved from Calgary to Edmonton when I met you. I was – I moved there in 2003, um, and I remember buying albums like by The Shins and stuff and going, eh. I bought the – recent album by the Euler set because I really liked their second mm-hmm. album uh, which I think is called The Last Match which is great actually and I bought their next album and I was like this I don't like it I was like indie bands are doing stuff I don't like they're coming off real pretentious and then when I heard the Postal Service to me it was like yeah we're doing beats but then we're singing oh, oh that kind of stuff ah, I don't like this I don't go for it and I think I kind of stopped being a real indie guy at that point. And then the and, good indie bands like like Airport Girl, who you turned me on to, oh, they, yeah. they didn't get known, right? So the bands yeah. who were more of a drag uh, took yeah, off. And- yeah, that album. You know, that's something I bought at the time that kind of made me go, oh, there's still some good stuff. Honey, I'm an Artist by uh, Airport Girl. I recently kind of went back to it. And f- when I saw Airport Girl come up in my algorithm, I went, oh, yeah. And I went back <laughs> and listened. I was like, this is so good. And yet they just didn't – no one really knew who they were. Uh, Scottish indie band. Who, yeah, that one album, Honey, I'm an Artist, is really great. But yeah, yeah. I, was, I was listening to – I was really – that was a period where it was a crisis of faith in indie for Weldon Hunter. And, uh, you know, I was like, hey, I think indie bands don't have a lot of – I think they got one good album in them. I was thinking mm-hmm. of other bands at the time too. I like this band called The Ladybug Transistor. They had an album called Beverly Atonal. I think it was like – I just listened to it over and over again. It was beautiful. I loved it. And then they came out with an album where they started doing these Beach Boys things and stuff. And I was like – Ah, no, don't. And then that's, that always was happening. And then you'd read interviews with indie bands and they took themselves so seriously. You know, the interview where it's like, we're a lot darker on this album. And I'm like, I like reading interviews with Dave Wakeling where he's like, he's just sort of self-deprecating. Like, I don't know. You know, I could have been a plumber, but I'm the songwriter. Same thing, you know, just different right. kind of tools. And you go, yeah, I like that attitude a lot better than, you know, there was that indie band somewhere. I don't know. I think it was more recently in the 2000s. They did a, um, a, a remake of uh, an album by Black Flag, but they did it without re-listening to Black Flag. They just did what they remembered. And, of course, all their songs are, like, completely absurd. None of them sounded like a hardcore. It was just right. arcade fire style music. And I was like, oh, I hate indie stuff so much now. I hate that aspect of it. There's something about it that's just so smarmy. And I feel like Harvey Danger actually might be a band that has a little bit of that, but I don't know for sure. I think it kind of 
it hangs together well in this song. Yeah. But I don't think I would necessarily think that I would have a lot of in, interest in in there. I also like the electric piano in this song. That dun, 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 that little oh, solo. Oh yeah, yeah. That's yeah. right. They bring that. I like that it's quite simple, but it works well. Yeah, uh, there's something kind of bubblegum of the song with that, uh, mm-hmm. with the uh, the stuff that we're talking about, the music box, and then the electric piano. There's something kind of. There's something going on in the arrangement that's actually quite good, but I didn't look up, you know, who and how. I uh, Then again, the 23-minute – you know what? You should just stop listening to us talk about the song and go to – when we publish this, I promise I'll put up that 23-minute video, 23 minute video essay, and you'll get a lot of information from that. You're just getting our kind of take on the song here. But I think we've kind of covered it. Do you have any other stuff you want to say about Harvey Danger's Save It For Later? No, I I think I'm okay. The the I'll note that when I read their Wikipedia page, which is, was about the extent of my Harvey Danger research, yeah, uh, they said that after they had that big hit with Flagpole Sitta, that they uh, I don't. This is from Wikipedia. I don't know if any of this stuff's true, but that they uh, were offended that people were referring to them as like a one hit wonder, thinking of them as a one hit wonder, and then they then they released an album that was sort of like Radiohead like. Oh yeah. So. I don't know if it actually would be, but I don't know if I'm supposed to go listen to this Radiohead like album. But man, it's no, like, don't do it. You guys I mean, should I, have stuck with your uh, flagpole sitness if that's the yeah. Thing. I mean, come on. I mean, see, that's the thing. They're they're a they're an indie band that takes themselves too seriously, and they shouldn't because just just be a band that writes fun, cool songs. Like I didn't love Flagpole Sitter, but it, I remember it being on the radio all the time, and you're like, yeah, whatever. Uh, but their their snottiness is a little bit. It's a bit of that Nirvana snottiness, is like it's being a bit unearned or something. There's something about the feeling of their cynicism being just a kind of uh, knee jerk reaction or something. I don't know what to say about it. Like upon reflection, um, I'm thinking about how that song Flagpole said it has found out only stupid people are breeding, and I'm thinking that's kind of their attitude, and right, even the fact right. that there's we're, an irreverent smarter than everyone else. Yeah, there's there's something there, and and I just kind of when I was reading about Harvey Danger and remembering them and sort of just you know getting information, I was like, yeah, they're not really my, they're not I'm not in their gang, I'm not in their gang, even though I I was kind of pretty into indie music for a while, but as I expressed, I had the the crisis of faith. <laughs> and when bands make that kind of music, like Radiohead kind of music, there's a part of it that's you know, well, I guess you need at least one Radiohead out there, but. Yeah, when when you you get mad because people are calling you a one hit wonder, and then you start making radio kind of music, it's sort of like, what are you even trying to make a hit? You know, yeah. like you that's a, your reaction. It's like you're in a school where you're not very popular, and then mm-hmm. you make yourself so that you're not even like you're not trying to be friends with anybody. You know? Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's interesting because it's almost like the lyrical theme of the song is like uh, of the original by Dave Wakeling is wanting to make a decision about are you going to be an adult or are you going to stay in childhood? Yeah. And these guys are no, we're going to kind of stay in this childish uh, demeanor. At right. the same time, like, you know, but while we make moves to appear adult, but we're, you know, to me, it's like, why didn't you just do more flagpole sitters? You have it in you. But then, as you pointed out, that they kind of went into some other kind of thing. I saw an interview with them where, uh, because they were a band that had a huge hit, they were asked to play MTV Spring Break and they were being interviewed. And someone even said to them, uh, how would you respond to people who say that you're, you know, possibly going to be a one hit wonder? Uh, the The bass player... Uh, Aaron Huffman, he had a kind of thoughtful response to it that I kind of thought was sincere, but I thought the singer was a little bit, um, eh, 
about it. And I thought, well, if you can write songs like Flag Pulsita, why don't you just write songs like Flag right. Pulsita? Like people like them and you get money for them and you probably enjoyed that song. So it's like the legend of Creep by Radiohead where the guitarist hated the song. So we tried to ruin it by that having that guitar. But I don't know if that's a true story. That's just the story that circulated in the 90s about that song. He tried even, to ruin the even song. Even though it's that. sort of like, well, it sounds similar to what you do on guitar and like a bunch of other, well, other songs. Yeah. Songs. Yeah, I wonder if it's just an urban legend then or something. But um, yeah, I always thought bands in the 90s really took themselves seriously, right? Like mm-hmm. uh, Radiohead, Nirvana. Like Nirvana is no fun to see an interview with because Kurt just Kurt Cobain just sort of says things and with I don't know. They just seem like young guys that should they would he would have grown up if he had right. stayed alive, and he might look back well and kind of cringe. That guy was my fucking friend. <laughs> he was from my generation. Ding, 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 ding. Anyways, I think we've probably, I like, I like our, that we've gone off on this kind of tangent because it's obviously a thoughtful tangent about music and what it means to people like us. And, you know, if you're a Harvey Danger fan, we're not putting Harvey Danger down. If you're an indie guy that doesn't like uh, some of the other stuff we do, and then you probably not listen to our podcast, right? So um, let's get down to now. The question is, what are we going to play now? Remember that someone recently wrote to us, a astronaut, and said, "Whatever happened to the sweets for my sweet stuff?" And I'm like, right. "Yeah, you're right. We've gotten a little prog because we play long songs now. Yeah, we play and, like three, four, five, ten minute songs for the yeah. Of the yeah, so let's maybe if you want, you just uh, stitch in the uh, sweets for my sweet sound file here." I think it's good because you also mentioned that in uh, in Save It For Later, you could have a part that was, I just meow, 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 meow. So why not go with Wang Wang Dog? Yeah, yeah. For my sweet. Yeah, yeah. So dogs and cats, and then we're going to come back after you hear it, and it's a blast from the past, and we'll try and do it a little more often. Go back to our roots when we were just a young, skinny, you know, hungry punk rock garage punk podcast and now look at us we're doing songs that aren't even garage rock we're playing we have three out almost three hour podcasts we're trying to get back to our roots so we're going to play wang wang dog we're going to come back and talk about our bo diddley award winners so here it is sweet soul my sweet show the All right, we're ready to reveal the winners of this week's Bo Diddley Award. What we always do is count down from three, and then we do the thing. So three, two, one. You've got the beat. I've got Pete Townsend, and I also have a picture of a big nose, by the way. So <laughs> I, I added that. Uh, explain yourself. Uh, I really, I just really got into this beat version of the song. And as you said, I, I've known the song quite a long time and, and been a fan of it for quite a long time. But actually, once I started listening to it very closely, I was like, man, there's a lot more going on in this song than I ever noticed. I guess I was a little more focused on on the vocals, especially in just the, the overall sound of the song. Uh, but yeah, you listen to a song a bunch of times in a row and then try and figure out exactly what's going on. You You get a different relationship with it. And the relationship is healthy and good. Yeah, you've got a healthy relationship with the beat, save it for later, which I like that there, there's been no real ups and downs, probably. You actually now got a more mature understanding of your relationship with that song. 
And, you know, you could have an anniversary sometime, I guess. Um, think about your favorite song. People could do that, right? Like, hey, mm. when did I first hear Gardening at Night by R.E.M.? It might have been 30 years ago. So let's have a 30th anniversary. Me, just me and the song. We go out for a date. You know, we, I, take, I take it out to a nice restaurant and then, you know, Here's lose one, your imagination. One thing with me, though, is people, they ask me now, they go, what's your favorite blank you know they say what's your favorite this what's your favorite that and i get i guess people know i like music a with music a lot what's your favorite band i'm like man i don't have a favorite anything i'm a grown Mm -hmm. man i'm not some guy sitting around like my favorite color is blue like (laughs) i'm a grown man and variety is the spice of life i like i don't i don't want to hear one song over and over again i like a lot of songs you know i like a lot of foods i like a lot of colors yeah i i agree Uh, save it for later though could be it could be a favorite song is I think about a song that is so good that all of the covers of it are also good. Mm. That could be a song. Now you don't have to call it a favorite. You, you, you don't have to call it the favorite. It could be a favorite. What's your favorite song? Well, one of my favorites is save it for later because all of the versions I've heard three of them. And I also understand that Pearl jam does it because they do a, a medley of it with better man. Cause right. yeah. it's very similar in some ways. Uh, and they love Pete Townsend, right? So that must be kind of where it come from. Um, but I chose Pete Townsend because really the Bo Diddley Award for like I my favorite version is the Beats version. I think that's the best version because it's the I think the original kind of counts. But the Pete Townsend version was blowing my mind because I didn't really listen to it until the last two weeks. And the more I listened to it, I went, wow, this is a really heartfelt cover of it. And from a guy who I kind of don't expect to love stuff from, even though I love right. songs by The Who, I kind of yeah. have uh an ambivalent relationship with pete townsend and there's times where i think i don't i probably wouldn't like it it doesn't matter if i'd like him or not i love what he's done with this song i love the jacko pistorius bass i like the the way he takes the piano i like how he makes it kind of an epics you know rock opera of a song in a way mm-hmm. and i just think oh wow it works i didn't think it would work for me so i that's what kind of blew my mind i love the harvey danger version because it's kind of the one that i probably knew the best I think when I started listening to the Beats version, when YouTube really around 2010, when you realized YouTube did did have lots of stuff, I'd go back and watch the video for "Save It for Later" by the Beat and go, "Oh yeah, their their version is so good. It's such a great song." Mm-hmm. And I realized I can like the Harvey Danger one and I can like this one and not really worry about having a favorite amongst them. It's just each one works really well. So I think that that's a this is an episode where you can have a kind of nice example of. I think times when the podcast is really doing what it's meant to do is take three versions and all of them are really good and say they're all also doing something different with the song. I also like it when we do versions that we think are hilarious or we never really hate a version. We just usually kind of think it's off or has something wrong with it or maybe it kind of makes fun of a song, you know, in a way that we don't appreciate but i love it when it comes together like this especially because this has no garage rock in it it's just a pop song from the 80s but i think it's a song that a lot of people will love so i think we've we didn't do any textbook slams in this episode no this is the first episode no yeah no we've had episodes that we didn't slam textbooks before Uh, or for a while but it is rare usually we have at least one and i'm sure that in the at least at least in the beat section of the episode you you could have had a couple slams there but i i think uh i think we were just maybe we were maybe there's no textbooks for these 80s songs yet we're we're only Uh getting into the garage textbook still 
Well, I'd encourage our uh, listeners, the pastronauts, to when you're at home, textbook slam what you play, want to textbook play, slam. Play the in the past home game. <laughs> yeah. Where, where you, you, you have the set of textbooks in your hand and you can slam them together when you hear something that you think. Something you like. Yeah. Stop what you're doing. Even if you're making dinner for your family and you're all gathered around the laptop or your phone listening to us rattle on about songs. And then, Daddy, that's a textbook slam. <laughs> Wow, that's so dumb. I think that's where we should end. Eric, do you want to say goodbye to the folks? I do. Farewell, Pastronauts. We got to go. Bye-bye. Just hold my hand